If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, today Rado Talks for episode 73 of the podcast. Welcome back. As always, I'm going to be answering some questions that you have submitted at questions at rado.com and which you must continue to submit, questions at rado.com, or there is no show. So, as always, first I'm going to do some game stuff. Then Jen, my wife, will show up for some game stuff as well. And then Jen will stick around while we do personal stuff. And, uh... Nothing much new other than that. I should say that apologies if you find I this month I put an ad on the podcast. If you're listening rather than watching on YouTube, because you can always watch on YouTube instead of listen to the podcast, you may have heard me uh, do a quick little ad uh, saying how much I enjoy the uh, platform I'm doing my podcast on these days. Anchor.fm. What can I say, folks? I think it's awesome. I'm not doing an ad anymore. I just wanted to acknowledge that I was doing that. Hopefully, it's not too particularly annoying. Uh, supposedly, it would just put it on once, just a quick little thing saying why it's great, and it is great, and I don't know why I'm continuing to talk about it because you already heard about it. Why don't I just get to those questions? You know what? I will right after this. Okie dokie, we are ready to go. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you will notice that the layout of the questions looked a little bit different. That is because ever since I started actually having video on the YouTube version of the podcast and I was putting up emails, you know, so I, uh, people could just see the actual email rather than me reading it, uh, it's been a bit of a problem because some people put their email address in their SIG and whatnot. And I thought, that can't be publishing that. So this month, I went on ahead and grabbed all the questions and copied and pasted them into one bid Word document. So I'll just be able to go through this. Like always, I haven't really looked too terribly closely at the questions. I'm trying to keep things spontaneous and in the moment, which is just the way I like to do things. For better or for worse, I'm sure maybe I should actually spend a fair bit of time uh, researching and digging into a lot of these topics, but I just like to play it by ear. I think it just makes it a little bit more fun if, if the show is really spontaneous. So, let's get going. We've got some questions, as always, from super fan of the show, Mario. Mario says, first of all, uh, did I realize that episode 62 was six years of the podcast? I think I did. I think I mentioned that at some point in episode 62. Apparently, you missed five uh, years last year, uh, and I think I did too. Did I even mention it? I don't remember. Let's just celebrate this weird milestone. Last month, Mario was trying to remember where I was when the podcast started, where Mario was. Where was he when the podcast started? And because he's been listening since episode one, which is amazing. And he realized um, the mark was pretty close. How do I feel about it? All right. That's a weird sentence. But I think you mean, how do I feel about having done six years of the podcast? I don't know. It's fine. As I mentioned last month, when I, I think I also pointed out uh, that um, I've been doing it for six years, I'm just really not big on milestones. I, I, I tend to let them come and go. I often forget about them. I think I mentioned last month that Jen and I both kind of forgot our 10th wedding anniversary on the day it was, and we didn't really do anything that fancy for our 30th. We're just uh, kind of chillaxed about that. So 
I guess it's nice. I never really go back and listen to the old episodes or anything like that. So I, 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 I half the time I don't remember. Have I answered this question? And when did I? I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I guess I should be proud of it. I, I've often wondered, should I? I mean, I've so I've been doing it for six years, and I'm only up to number seventy-two or 73 as of today. Should I be doing these bi-weekly so that my numbers would really pump up? I mean, I basically produce you most uh most months 2 to 3 hours of podcast content, you know, plus all the other stuff the top 10s and yeah, I don't know. I I I I'm I'm rambling. Uh how do I feel about it? Fine. I don't really have uh, anything much to say, but uh I'm glad you're enjoying it, Mario and uh Props to you for sticking all the way through the, all these years. Okay, next, I'm sure you have a real question. Uh, I've admitted I do solo run-throughs if it doesn't affect the way the game works in multiplayer. Correct. Do I find myself playing solo gamer more lately? Uh, no, I do not. It's it's I, 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 I do the solo run-throughs because it's literally more fun to play that way. It's more fun to film the run-through, and I think it's better for more people because you know uh, people who are interested in the solo game get a good sense of the game, but people who are interested in the multiplayer game, because of my restriction, get, still get a good feel of the game. But no, I'm, you know, I'm not playing board games if Jen's not at the table. I, I, there's other stuff I'd rather do under those circumstances. Do I rate games thinking about the solo mode? No, I don't. That's a good question. If you go to rank.rado.com, you can see how I rank every game in my collection, and I do not take the solo mode into account at all for those rankings. Those are ranked based on how much I enjoy playing them with Jen. Alrighty, you remember some time ago that I mentioned Space Hulk Death Angel was the only game I owned to play solo because Jen didn't care about it. Did that list get any new games? Yeah, uh, yeah. these days, Marvel Champions would be the other game on that list. Because, I mean, I love Marvel Champions, even though I've kind of gotten a little disappointed with it recently, with the kind of the directions it's going with all the expanded content. And Jen will occasionally play it with me, but she just, I don't, I, you know... Well, one, it's always hard to make time to play it, so the only time I do is when new expansions, new uh, heroes or villains come in that I'm going to play through. And normally I'm playing those alone because Jen, if she's really got to be in the right mood for Marvel Champions. There's a lot going on. It's very complex, and it's getting more and more complex as time goes on, which is one of the bummers. When we originally got it, the original box of five heroes and three villains, Jen really enjoyed that quite a bit. But as she's been introduced to more and more stuff, she has been less and less engaged and less and less inclined to go back. And that's kind of heartbreaking because I still do love it. I'd still rather play it with her, but I am playing it alone just because I love Marvel superheroes that much. Okay. Lagranja, no siesta. Why didn't it make the cut? What was the missing hook that made it fall for the international move? Right, yes, because when we moved back from Malta to America, I forget, there was like a hundred games or so that I just got rid of instead of, you know, having that much more that we had to transfer, um, you know, intercontinentally. And, um, oh boy, what was it? I mean, it was a good little roll and write, no two ways about it. I think in part it was because if I'm going to play a roll and write, it's probably going to be. Uh, on tour, and I, I or um, Castles of Burgundy, the the, the Rolling Right, or uh, well nowadays Hadrian's Wall, and I mean there's nothing bad about it. It was just less likely. Oh, you know what? There is one thing. When Jen and I played it, we didn't find this to be the case, but I do remember there were several people making very strong, impassioned complaints about the Grand Hano Siesta. That there was, I forget what it was, something fundamentally broken about 
what was it? Um, the way the game could end, because the game can just go on forever if certain die rolls never show up. And, I mean, we hadn't had that problem. I think I even mentioned that problem when I covered it. But, you know, in the back of my mind, it always leaves me wondering, well, maybe... Maybe there is a problem there? I don't think there was, but enough people complained about it that maybe that kind of stuck in my craw a little bit as well. But more than anything else, it's just that I, I realized as I was trying to make hard cuts, because I don't think I would have... I mean, if I only had 100 games, I probably wouldn't have gotten rid of it, but I had, you know, over 500 games, and I had to get rid of a bunch of them. And, uh, you know, the fact that there are other rolling rights I would play before I would play No Siesta is what just made it not stay on the list. Let's see. Then, after watching my top 10 two-player games, which I, I did recently with... What was it? Did I do that with Ella and Stella? Yes, I believe that's right. Anyway, that video got Mario wondering. I said that there was a caveat for having only two-player games... Or, or I'm sorry, having two-player-only games on that list. Exception Arian. Yeah, I mean, I, that wasn't really an exception. I, I, it was only games that were solo or... Two, or solo and... Two, solo or two-player... Or solo slash two player. So the the owner room games had the opportunity, and uh, you know there's a couple of others that would probably be able to fall under that exception as well. But anyway, um, if I took that out, th that restriction, if I allowed games that for more than two players that, that, that supported more than two players, how different would my that top ten list have been? And here's a quick reminder: my top ten two player only that I did a few months ago with Ella and Stella. Um, was number 10, Fugitive, 9, Yokohama Duel, 8, Foothills, 7, Stellar, 6, King Domino Duel, 5, Arian, 4, Glasgow, 3, Bonanza, 2, Mandala, and 1, Circle of the Wagons. If I did not put that caveat in that they had to, they, they couldn't support more than two players to be on that list, then the list would have been completely different. None of those 10 would have made the list. And in fact, my, to my top 10 two-player games would be literally the exact same as my top 10 games, period. Because my top 10 games, period, work well with two players. So that just struck me as, what's the point of doing that list? I've already done that list. I've already counted down my top 10 twice, I think. You know, it's updated a little bit over the years. So it just made no sense to do that. So having that hard limit... And I don't know why, it's, it's, there's a really odd fascination with two-player-only games, games that don't support warranty. I mean, and I mean, it's, it's interesting. That top 10 has the biggest views of any... Uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest views I've had over the last year. I mean, people... Re there are, there's a huge group of people that really, really dig two-player-only games. And, um, you know, or I don't know, maybe they're just quick to dismiss higher-player-count games, because often, for a game that's higher-player-count, you sometimes you're playing and you feel like, this would be so much better with more than two. And, um, I mean, those games I tend not to keep. I'll, I love all my games uh, that I keep. I think they all work great with two players, with the exception of two of them. Dixit and one other that I can't think of now. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so yeah, the, the list would have been 100% different. It would have been literally my top 10 games of all time. Because my top 10 games of all time, surprisingly, not surprisingly, work well with two. Alrighty, Mario has a YouTube Masterclass question. What is the difference for me... Um, my audience watching one of my videos straight from start to the end or watching it split amongst two or more days? I gotta be honest, Mario. I have no idea. And I suspect no one has any idea. Um, I think what's more important is whether the videos get likes. And I really should be telling everybody, be sure to like and subscribe while you're at it because I think likes have a really big uh, deal. But, um... 
I would guess, with no inside knowledge, that whether you watch it um, all the way through in one or two sittings, I mean, I guess maybe that's better for you because you you show, look, I'm really interested in so much, I'm going to come back on another day and finish it. But the thing is, anybody who says they know, they're lying. Nobody knows. YouTube keeps that kind of stuff so close to the vest, they don't tell anybody how this... Or at best, they kind of drop hints. They give lots of vague statements about, well, the likelihood of your video getting recommended is based on um, how well it performs when people watch it. I'm like, well, what does that mean? What you know, How well it performs? And then they won't say anything more. Um, I think it's certainly better if you watch the video all the way through. If you only watch for a few minutes and then turn it off, that probably doesn't help get it pushed by the algorithm anymore. Whether, I mean, and if you, if you watch it multiple times, I'm sure that helps too. Maybe uh, splitting it amongst two days would make a difference. I don't know. But I do think what's more important is liking and commenting. Those, I'm sure, have a huge impact because those are what YouTube wants to see. YouTube wants to see that my video was so impactful on my audience that the audience actually took the time to hit the like button and actually took the time to say something. That's why you see so many YouTube video, uh, you know, you know, people who are actually trying to, to, you know, to to game the system, always say, they always ask their audience some weird, esoteric question. You know, um, you know, what's your favorite color? Be sure to let me know down in the comments. They don't really want to know your favorite color. They just want you to add a comment so that the video will get pushed farther and more people will see it. And I, I, I don't know. I should do that kind of stuff. I just have a hard time bringing myself to do it. But yeah, like, comment, watch, more than less. Those are the main things you can do, I think, to make a difference. And then finally, Mario says, do I want to explain a bit what my YouTube engagement, or what, what is my YouTube engagement and how it works? What makes a difference for you to show up on more people's seats? I, I, actually, I think I just described it. The best, the most impactful thing you can do, as I understand it, is like it, um, comment on it, and watch as much of it as, as you can. Watch it all the way through. Those three things, I think, have more of an impact than anything else. Oh my gosh, share it. Uh, yeah, I mean, YouTube will say, all YouTube cares about is, did this get, did, did this hold your attention? What is the best way for YouTube to know that? Um, well, it would be that you interacted with it in some way. Hey, probably another way to do it, click on the ad. If you happen to watch my video and an ad comes up, click on it. Um, that's probably going to, uh, get YouTube's attention as well. I mean, these are all just common sense. Again, YouTube will not, never come right out and explain this is exactly how it works. Just the same way they'll never explain exactly how ads get associated. They, they don't explain anything. They keep all that stuff in a black box. But yeah, like it, um, th- uh, you know, comment on it, share it, all those kinds of things. The more you can do to prove that you were engaged with the video enough to do something as opposed to you just sat there and watched. I mean, if you just let it play all the way to the end and you don't like it or comment, for all YouTube knows, you start playing it and then just walked away. And you know, it might have played and you never saw it because you just let... I mean, YouTube by default will just keep playing a video over and over and over again. And YouTube has no idea if you don't interact with it in some way if you're even literally in front of the computer. Uh, because uh, as far as I know, they do not yet track, you know, hijack your web camera to see if you're actually watching. As far as I know, they don't do that. Anyway, okay. Moving right along to Victory BHG. Uh, Vic says, I believe you follow rules as written on playing games um, to completely appreciate the designer's vision and playtesting. Kind of, kind of. But for Vic... After playing the same game over and over again, uh, you know, Vic finds himself 
I assume it's him. I feel like I know who you are, Vic BHG. I should know, because I think you're a backer on Patreon, and I could probably just go look it up. But anyway, I'm just going to say he. Uh, um... No, I should say they because I don't know. So why? Oh, I take all right. So so um. But but for for Vic, after playing the same game over and over, uh, they find themselves house ruling to make the game more competitive or smooth over parts of the game that Vic personally feels needs improvement. So much so that I find myself or you know Vic finds himself going back to the original rules. Impossible, entre impossible. Uh, so Vic wants to know. Do I think it's appropriate to share these house rules or play the game in public with these house Sure. Yeah, it's your game. Play however you want. Uh, is it appropriate? Of course. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any problem with that at all. I mean, the reason I don't do it, it's, I guess it's about appreciating the Diviner's vision and playtesting, but that's not quite it. It's more that any given game, I don't get to play it near as much as you do, Vic. I rarely get to go back to a game dozens and dozens of times. Um, maybe the more I did that, maybe I'd be more inclined to make little tweaks instead. But I find I have so many games. I'm surrounded by them. I've got hundreds of them. Why keep a game around if the uh, you know the official rules, if I have a problem with them, just let it go. I've got plenty of other games where I have no problem with the official rules. I'm always looking for any reason to dump any game, quite frankly. And if they give me a reason that I think this is a, a rough patch that should have been smoothed out, yeah, I could smooth out myself, or I could get rid of it and play a game that didn't have a problem in the first place. Um, and the other thing, too, I it's, it's less about the vision, and I guess it's about the playtesting, because if I make a change to a game, if I give us an extra five bucks to start, because I really feel the game starts too slow and we should really be able to, to buy more interesting stuff earlier, let's say, I would always, always, always in the back of my head worry that I broke the game in some way, and that I gave some kind of... Un- I imbalanced the game. The second player is going to benefit more because that extra boost plus going second in turn order is going to lead to some small 5% tweak that, or, or, that could change the overall win-loss ratio, all other things staying the same, by 5 or 10%. And like I, that just kind of bugs me. It just kind of... Sticks in my craw, gnaws at the back of you know the you know the the short hairs on my neck stand on end. I just I just don't feel comfortable with that. Um, so which is why I'm generally interested in variants where the designer themselves have said, "Yeah, this is cool. This changes nothing. If you made that change, it would not affect the game balance at all. And if you enjoy it, by all means, please make that change. That's what I care about more than anything else." And I know I shouldn't, because it's the journey, not the destination. Who cares if the if the game balance changes a tiny bit? But I do. And it's probably, as much as anything else, my background as a game designer. I was a game designer for 20 years. So, um, you know, I, I do care about that. And I figure the game has been through hundreds of man-hours of testing. And who am I? You know, and that has probably, not guaranteed, but probably resulted in the most balanced iteration of that game, taking into account all that playtesting. And I don't want to throw that out the window. It just doesn't make sense to me to do it. So that's really my uh, thinking there. Anyway, though. Vic continues apologizing for the long-winded question and wonders uh, if I've answered this question before. Actually, you know what I think I have? I think it's literally... uh, I I got asked this question so many times, it's under faq.rado.com, like number 18 or number 19 or something like that. It's just that, uh, Vic continues, recently they were playing Wingspan and watched my video, First Class, all about the Orient Express, and I I was using a card mechanism 
of first class to cycle through the deck in wingspan faster to provide... So oh no, this is something Vic was doing. He applied something in first class and applied it to wingspan. And um, and I'm sure and I'm sure you dug it. And hey, that's great if you felt that it needed. And you're having fun. That's the only thing that matters. Are you having fun? And is everybody else at the table having fun? I have demonstrably less fun if I'm worried in the back of my head that I have broken in some small, tiny, arguably insignificant way the overall balance of the game. So I, I just can't enjoy it as much. So why do it? In addition, after playing Rajas of the Ganges, Vic uh, allowed overbuilding of spots in addition at additional resource costs as well. Vic feels it makes the game less luck-based and more strategic to fulfill some of the objectives, and it helps answer some criticisms from reviewers. All right, great. If you're having fun, that's the point. So I, I, I don't imagine anybody would have a problem with that. Anyway, Vic plays with those rules personally, but wasn't sure whether it's appropriate to use the rules in public or share them in an open forum. Of course, share them. And um, yeah, if you're at a convention and you want to uh, say, hey, everybody, uh, you want to play Rajas, bear in mind, I make a pretty significant change to the game. I'll tell you why I do it. Just tell everybody. I mean, I think it would be... I think it would be a little uncool if you brought Rajas of the Ganges out and played it with a bunch of people who hadn't played it before, and you described, hey, uh, and you taught them how to play it, and you taught them how to play it your way. Personally, I would be a bit bugged by that if I found out later that, what? I wasn't even playing the game right? Not cool, Victory BHG! Not cool at all! So at the very least, tell everybody you're making your change, explain why, I wouldn't be surprised if someone would say, "Oh, well, okay, I'm going to pass on this because I'd rather play the the rules as written." Um, but uh, just you know, just be open and honest about it. No reason to be sneaky or duplicitous. Um, all right. So you'd like to hear my thoughts? Any apologies have answered? Like I said, I don't think I've gone into this. I mean, this has come up every once in a while, so much so that it's under my FAQ. But um, nobody's ever asked if it's if if they shouldn't post about it. To uh, no, go up by all means. That's what Board Game Geek is for. Every forum for every game, all hundred thousand games on Board Game Geek has a subform called variants. It's there so people can discuss their variants. Use it. People love it. Alrighty, Darren wonders: Have I done a top ten business simulators? Which was a list that Darren would very much like to see. That is a good list. I I've not done one like that. I wonder why. I wonder if I've got ten games. They're just. I mean, I'm assuming you mean modern business. I mean, because Euro, a lot of euros on some. I mean, uh, uh, Concordia. You could consider it a business simulation. It's the business of harvesting goods and transporting them around um, the Mediterranean. That's a business. But I, I assume you mean like Preda Porter and, uh, you know, gosh, what are there? What are? Oh, I mean, you've got me curious now. How many games are there? I, if I haven't, one reason is because I literally can't think of 10 off my top of my head. But I'm going to go to board gaming. I'm going to go to Pret and see if anybody's ever made a family of business simulations. Let's see. What have we got here? Themes, sewing, knitting, cloth, fashion, art. Right. Um, economic. Industry manufacturing? No, I mean, because this is going a bit beyond, I think, what you're talking about. You're, you're, I, mean, I mean, but Food Chain Magnet, I guess that's a business simulation. Feast for Odin doesn't feel like a business, though. Underwater Cities doesn't feel like a business. Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably come up with 10. Let's, okay, let's, let's go to rank.rado.com. Let's try and do this right now. All righty. Um, and yeah, I'd be counting down for my... All right, so Pandemic, Shadowrun, Gloomhaven, Agricola. These, none of these feel like businesses to me. Civilization Games, Dominion, Roll for the Galaxy. Manhattan Project Energy Empire. That's arguably a business simulation. But is it? I mean, 
I am running. Well, I mean, I, I ostensibly I, I represent a nation, not an actual businessman. But it is still all about trying to invest in infrastructure to produce more and more power for the growing needs of power that I need. But it, no, it doesn't feel like. I mean, what? Why does Pret feel like a business simulation? Well, one because it is. It's. I mean, I, I I'm running a specific company. I have to actually pay attention to the needs of my employees. It's a worker placement game. I I I have to balance books. Um. Yeah, Manhattan Project Energy feels too abstract to really be a business sim. So it's probably not one. At least not as I would define it. Shipyard. I mean, it's a shipbuilding business simulation, but it doesn't feel like it. Maybe for it to feel like oh, I'm really running a business. That there has to be some kind of representation as a business runner. I mean, yes, there's I mean, oh, there's a lot of games. The networks is another one. It's ostensibly I'm running a business. Uh, I'm running a TV network. But that means all I'm focusing on the networks is the product. And I think that's what most Euros do. They just have you focus on the product. Do whatever you have to do. Spend abstracted resources to make things and convert those things into victory points. That's what most of these games do. Preta Porter goes beyond... Yes, I'm producing a product as well, but I'm selling that product to make money. I'm spending that money to invest in my, my business growth. I am actually paying attention to my workers' salaries. Um, I am actually paying attention to hiring specific employees with skills that I need. That feels like a business in the way that the networks does not. I don't think I've made a top 10 of this list because I don't think I have played 10 games that truly capture the essence of a business. They capture elements, portions of a business, but not the whole thing such that I would feel like it's a business simulation. Um, yeah, I think that's the problem. I mean, I'm up to... I'm almost into finished my top 100, and so far, there's Pret. Kanban. Is that a business simulation? Is it? I mean, it goes so far as to simulate getting together for quarterly, um, you know, progress reports in a conference room. I don't know, though. Again, there's no real reference. I mean, a business without the people. Yeah. Kalanbon feels a lot less like a business simulation to me than Preda Porter. Again, because there's no representation of my employees. And I don't think I feel like I'm a boss unless my employees are there, or whoever it is that I'm managing. Um, if they are abstracted out, then too much is abstracted out for me to feel like it's a business. So, yeah, I don't think I could do a top 10 of this. And that's actually kind of a shame. Why aren't there more games that do that? Seems like kind of a shortcoming uh, uh, that, um, you know, the uh, Euro uh, industry, uh, board game industry, could do a little bit more with. Anyway, though, so continuing on. Darren then wonders, I said uh, that doing corner to corner uh, was too much work, or you know, doing it by myself, right. Because when I was doing corner to corner, a show that I did with Tom Vassell, The Dice Tower, for, gosh, we did it for at least half a year, I think. Over half a year. Every week. Or was it before the end, I think we were every other week. Uh, it was a little talk show where he and I would get together for an hour every Tuesday, and uh, or then every other Tuesday, and just talk about topics of the day, answer questions, do some various and sundry segments and stuff like that. And a lot of people were bummed when it stopped, and some people have asked, well, hey, you're going to do it again? And one of the things I've said is, man, one of the only reasons I did that is because Tom did all the work. He set it up, he ran the show, he was the one managing the audience and all of that, and I just don't want to take all that on because... 
it's just a lot of work. I mean, all I had to do was just show up. And even then, it was start, It was a little onerous. Uh, you know, like a, a lot of pressure to always be there, like clockwork every two weeks at the end. But anyway, so as you point out, I've mentioned in the past, I didn't want to take on that labor myself. And you, you dare and say that's fair enough. But you also note that I have done Skype calls with people um, and I've done live shows. Yeah, that's how these days, I mean, for again, for almost a year now, every top monthly top 10 I do, I have been doing it via Skype calls with other people. I've been having co-hosts. So anyway, um, how much extra work would it actually be to do both of these at the same time? You wouldn't have to do graphics and stuff like Tom did. And of course, you wouldn't have to do it regularly if you didn't want to. But it seems like you're capable. Yes, I'm totally capable of it. I I I believe I could do it. I could do the whole thing. Um, including, you know, the managing the audience and all that. Um, and, you, and you, as you point out, I'm doing both halves of it now and then anyway, just a thought. Well, you will notice I have been doing these co-hosted top tens for since, I don't know, May of last year. So yeah, I guess over a year now, I've every top ten I've done has been joined with somebody else. You'll notice not a single one of them have been done live. And going live and trying to manage a live stream is a whole extra level of... of uh, stuff to manage and monitor, keeping the audience engaged. I could do it. I'm just not keen on it. The top tens, and I've thought about doing the top tens as a live thing too, because really we do them in one take, but it's just so much more comfortable and laid back when there's not an audience there. Now you might then turn around and say, well, who cares if there's an audience? Don't do it as an audience. Do them and then just post them after you record them. You're right. I totally could. But you know what? Every time I do that, that's going to be one less game I run through that month. Is that what you want? Would you rather have me doing some kind of talk show instead of covering another game? I'm genuinely curious. I suppose if that's what the majority of the audience wants, I could see my way doing that. But I think the majority of my audience wants me to run through games. Because the sole function of my channel, as far as I'm concerned anyway, is to help people decide if they should spend 50 or 70 or 100 or, or 300 bucks on a game. That's why I started doing it. I believe that is where I add the most value. Because unlike most other channels, when you watch one of my run-throughs, I think... You feel much more like you played the game yourself because I've gone into all the depth about the decision making and all of that. So yeah, I could do a, a, a talk show, but it would be at the expense of a run through a month. So I guess people can let me know. You know the email, uh, you know questionsarao.com. Uh, let me know what you think. Anyway, or leave a comment on a video. As we discussed earlier, uh, that's what I need for more YouTube algorithm engagement is people leaving comments on videos. <laughs> anyway, though. Um, all right, so we're moving on to Jeff, who says, Number one, there are some designers that came out with a very good game and then haven't done much else. It's true. In fact, uh, I think a couple of years ago, I did a top 10 one-hit wonders. All right, can I think of any I'd like to see design more? You know what? I should have should have read the whole question first. Well, you know what, Jeff? Do a Google, a Google search for Rado top 10 one-hit wonders. You will find 10 people that I believe should do more. Um, and interestingly, I think none of them were the three that you mentioned. Diago uh, Bonaventura uh, from the Capitals. Good choice. The Capitals is very good. Wolfgang uh, uh, Senker from Finca. Another good choice. Finca is a brilliant design. And Aaron Hag from Yunnan. Uh, Yunnan is a very good design. Those are three really good choices. None of them made my list. So I'll tell you about 10 more if you do a Google search for top 10 Rado one-hit wonders. Phew, I had that answer at the ready. Moving on to number two for Jeff. 
Jeff has been waiting for a serious scuba diving game. One of exploration that takes into account bottom tide, speed of um, ascent, uh, nitrogen narcosis, cave diving, etc. In other words, a serious and complex game. Nothing fictionalized or fantasy-themed. Have you heard of anything that fits that bill? No. I, and I'm surprised by that. There have been a couple of games that do a little bit with safety stops. I'm trying to remember. There was a game I... I I, I saw at a convention in Europe many, many years ago, and I'm pretty sure it did actually have the concept of safety stops and the risk that if you chose not to do it, you could get the bends, i.e. you'd lose some victory points. I'm sorry to say I cannot remember the name of the game at all, but even still, it was a super-duper lightweight game. And you know what, um, Jeff? I got my super certification when I was 12 years old, and I was born in 1969. So you do the math, and that will let you know that... Um, when I got certified, dive computers were not a thing. And you had to take down the uh, you know the plastic board with the wax pencil and figure out all your dive stop stuff while you're... Of course, you're supposed to figure it out ahead of time, but they trained us to be able to do it underwater and literally do all the long calculations on that, on that graph. I barely remember it now because it's been decades since I've done it. Um, but yeah... That level of detail, you know, the particulars of, uh, you know, the safety stops and, uh, you know, oxygen conservation and, and all that. I mean, I could totally see a deeper, richer, heavier game. And I don't know why it doesn't exist. I mean, you don't really see deep, rich, heavy sports games, though. And I guess you could kind of classify... Um, I mean, you know, there, there's some there's some mountain climbing games. K2 is an excellent game. There's a few other ones, but none of them are super duper heavy simulations that you know go into. I, I don't even know what would be required there, but I, I assume friction and weight and all kinds of stuff. They just keep it really, really light, and I think that's true. I mean, I did play one very, very, very deep. Formula One racing game many years ago. I covered it for the run-through, but most racing games, again, keep it pretty light. And I think there's just no... I mean, well, at least there's the presumption amongst board game developers and publishers that there's no audience for really, really heavy, meaty, complex um, games related to kind of sporty themes. Oh, that's interesting. This year, next month, or maybe it's September, I forget, there is one coming out. It's called Eleven from Portal Games. It, it's a sports game. It's a, basically, uh, it's Football Manager, the board game. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's interestingly, it's a business simulation from Portal Games, the same publisher as Preda Porter, tying back to the earlier question about business sims. And um, I'm interested in that. It'll be curious to see if that one is a really deep, meaty, crunchy game. And if it's successful... Maybe it would show publishers that there's more of an audience for this in other sporty-like activities, like diving. But I think right now, there's just not much demand. I don't, think, I don't see people demanding really rich, heavy, complex diving simulations, skydiving simulations, uh, mountain climbing simulations, uh, just sports and uh, hang gliding simulations. I'm sure all these things have a lot of really rich stuff. I, I, I suspect... They, we don't have them because people wouldn't buy them, by and large. I mean, and why would they? I mean, you would be interested. I would be interested. But what is the Venn diagram of uh, board gamers who are willing to spend 70 bucks on a rich, heavy, complex game and scuba divers? I, I, I bet you it's, there's not a lot of overlap, necessarily. I mean, scuba diving is a relatively niche hobby. Board gaming is a relatively niche hobby. And the two have no natural overlap. Or, you know, that just like makes you say, oh, of course, it's a match made in heaven. So I would assume that's why we haven't seen it. Uh, but it would be interesting. Alrighty. Pirate themed games are always fun to play 
for some reason. Uh, you know, and Jeff owns Merchant Marauders, Jamaica, Libertalia. What are some of my favorites, and why does it seem difficult to scale these for two players? It's difficult because publishers always feel that, oh, to make a pirate simulation, it has to be cutthroat, and players have to be at each other's throats. And um, two-player cutthroat gameplay is one of the hardest things you can do well as a developer because of the zero-sum nature of it. And, um, you know, as soon as you have a third or fourth or fifth player, the dynamics between players of, oh, I attack you, I get away scot-free, becomes much more interesting and engaging. Um, that said, I did do a top 10 pirate games. And I could probably even update it with a few changes. But again, do a Google search for Rado, top 10 pirate games, and you'll see me talk about 10 games that I think work pretty well as two-player games. Okie doke. Hello, Olivier. Uh, Olivier says that I was contacted to cover... Or asks, was I contacted to cover the Kittens Kickstarter for Isle of Cats? Have I looked into the new content, or am I looking forward to covering it in some way? Last question first. Yes, I would very much. I love Isle of Cats. Isle of Cats has made several top tens of mine uh, ever since I got a final copy and was able to play the non-prototype version. It's splendid. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I could be uh, much more... I'll, I'll just try to tone it down a little bit, but yeah, Isle of Cats is amazing. So, more content? I'm very interested. I couldn't tell you why Frank West, the uh, the designer publisher, never contacted me. I would have been all over it. I would have loved to cover it. Um, and mostly, forget about getting likes and looks and subscribes. I just want to cover it because I want to play it. I'm very excited about it. But he didn't contact me. And I don't blame him. Um, you know, it was going to be successful whether people covered it or not. He didn't need to because he had a guaranteed hit. So I assume he was just trying to save some cash money on you know producing prototypes and all of that. But uh, yeah, I would have been all over covering it, totally. But I was never contacted, sadly. So uh, I will just have to look forward to trying it when it comes out in retail. Next up, uh, you, Olivier continues, there is also a standalone flip-and-draw game available as part of the uh, Isle of Cats Kittens Kickstarter. And since I love both the normal game and roll-and-write style, is it something I'd be interested in? Totally, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, Tetris... Style polyomino no tiling games make for perfect roll and write games. I mean, it is implicitly more fun to draw a Tetris piece rather than just take one and put it on a board, I think, anyway. So, yeah, I'd be all over that, but uh, I was not contacted. I was left out in the lurch. All right. Uh, Stefan has question number one. I believe question, I, I think I split this up. His other questions will come later in the podcast when Jen shows up. But question number one from Stefan is. I started collecting board games more than a year and a half ago. At first, Stefan didn't know what games he should start with. There are many different opinions on the internet. Uh, the channel that initially grabbed his attention was Shut Up and Sit Down, and for some time, he blindly, Stefan blindly, accepted their opinions on the matter. Um, right, naturally, after a while, Stefan started noticing that you enjoy other games. Yes, because Shut Up and Sit Down has a very specific niche of what they like. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you only follow them blindly, you are missing out on a wide range of wonderful things, including the majority of what I cover. Anyway, uh, naturally, after a while I started noticing they enjoy other games, those which don't get much coverage from them, Euros, basically. So, Stefan started watching the Dice Tower, no pun included, uh, my show, several other channels, in order to satisfy growing appetites. Here's the question. How do I feel about the vast offer of games and opinions that today's newcomers to the hobby have to deal with. 
Um, right. And also, Stefan then adds uh, that he's found it's hard to keep up with all the new releases while trying to get all those old classics he's missed out on. Do I feel that because of these issues today, is it harder to get into the hobby? I don't think so. I think an average person getting into the hobby, it is very likely they did not stumble across the hobby by accident. I did. But most people, I suspect, are brought into the hobby by existing board game geek fans uh, that are their friends. Um, I think there's no greater spread of our industry than us, the players. Um, Of course, that's not going to be the case in every situation, but if you were brought in by an expert, forget about YouTube. Talk to your friend. Ask them for their opinion because they've been around the block for a while. Um, but if you are the oddball, like me, I mean, I, I, I stumbled into it by accident. I was looking for one thing, I got lucky, and a store employee gave me something else. I was looking for Scrabble, he sold me on Pandemic, and that changed Jens in my life. And if you... Actually, it's interesting, um, to compare and contrast where we are today versus where we were 10 years ago, I would suggest, Stephanie, if you haven't, do a Google search for Rado Top 10 or First 10 Games. I did a Top 10 where I talked about my journey as an early gamer. And if you watch that video, what you will hear is a report of me making tons of mistakes, hard learning goofs, uh, trying out games, finding they did not work for me, getting rid of them, trying again, almost losing all hope and thinking, oh, there's just this one game we like, Pandemic, and there's not going to be anything else. I should give up. Um, And that was 10 years ago. So I would say the plethora of people who are who are falling all over themselves to help gamers it's probably a plus i think it was probably harder 10 years ago when you had to really do your own due diligence and you i mean you know, and there you know 10 years ago shut up and sit down and barely started and um you know and i hadn't no they hadn't even started yet so i think we're better off where we are now um i think more important than youtube though is board game geek uh, what uh, what any new gamer needs what board game geek needs is on the front page you know they've completely read on the front page they're in the slow process of updating the whole site to make it more usable for first timers which is great and i applaud the effort the first thing that should appear on the front page of board game geek is a new to board games check this out board game geek actually has a blog post that's kind of like that but it doesn't need to be that it needs to be something a bit more modern and peppy that basically teaches complete novices how to get the information they need using board game geek because um you know, there's a, a few very uh very simple tricks that make it pretty easy to ensure you find stuff i mean it is all about if you if you've got one game you like that's all you need all you need to know is you need to be able to articulate we like this game and we like it for this reason if you can put that into words you can go to board game geeks recommendation forum post saying hey we're brand new to games we like this game and here's why does anybody have any recommendations and you will get inundated with excellent suggestions that's a better way to go than shut up and sit down or rotto runs through or the dice tower or a random board game search on youtube board game geek is the greatest tool ever i eventually learned how to use it but i had to do it the hard way and it is still pretty daunting but there are amazing tools the um 
uh, you know, that, your Board Game Geek. I mean, uh, another thing, if you have a game you like, go to that page on Board Game Geek. About halfway down the page, there'll be a list of people who like this game also like these games. Start there. Look at those games. And then just watch anybody's video of one of those games. Or even better, don't go watch a video. At the top of every game page on Board Game Geek, there's the rating, you know, saying, oh, this is game number 842 out of 10,000 or whatever. Um, you can click, there's somewhere on the page. Let me go, where is it? I've still got the page up, right? Um, all right, Miramis. If, if somehow Miramis was the game that you found out that you really liked, um, scroll down. And fans of Miramis also like Spirium, Deus, Olympus, uh, Endeavor, Polyphonies, uh, Brussels, 1893. You know what? I like Miramis, and I like all these games, too. These are good suggestions if you happen to... Now, of course, you're not going to fall into Miramis. You're going to do Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride. That's going to be a gateway for a lot of people. And if they go to Ticket to Ride's page, and they scroll down a little bit, they'll find, oh, you know what? Pandemic. Pandemic is a very good thing to go and check. Code names is a very good thing to go and check. Now, this will only take you so far, because this is going to keep you kind of in a bubble, and you are ultimately going to want to branch out. But that's why you go to Board Game Geek. You, um... Oh, where are they? You go to, um... Oh, whoops, this is too small. So, how do you get to forums if the... Because I've made the window small. How do you get... Oh, I mean, geez, this is weird. Um... I normally have my whole page open up like this, and then suddenly all the stuff appears, but shrunk down like this, where are they? Well, this doesn't help. All right. No, I don't want more conversation. I don't want this. Board Game Geek. No, I do. I want. Oh, yeah. So you click this, you go to forums, and then you go to... Um... My gosh, why is recommendations not here? Jeez Louise, Board Game Geek. It's like... You bend over backwards to make this hard. Uh, you, all right, so apparently you have to go to all forums. Then you go to recommendations. Why is recommendations not shouted from the rooftop? Recommendations should be its own entry because you go to recommendations and you will find recommendations is regularly um, you know, uh, surfed by hundreds of the most knowledgeable board game fans in human history. And um, if you're looking for worker placement game recommendations and you say, oh, well, I played Viticulture and I really like that, you're going to start getting a lot of suggestions and then you've got a lot of reading you can do. And um, you know, the more information you give about what you like and why you like it, the better the recommendations are going to be. Recommendations form is the be apparently the best kept secret on Board Game Geek and it really shouldn't be. You know, I go to the front page... It should be right up here near the top. It should be, it should be, there's Explore and Dashboard. It should be a third thing called Recommendation that just takes us directly to that forum. So that, oh, I can start looking at that and I say, oh, well, okay. You know, I, anyway, though, I don't think it, I, I think it's a great time to get excited about board games. I'm not worried about there being too much information. There's the right amount of information. It's just unfortunate that it's not as easy to navigate that navigation as it should be. As I just demonstrated, the most valuable tool for finding a game that you will love is buried under like three sub-clicks of a heading, and no one is ever going to find it by accident. And so, yeah, you do need somebody to lead you towards that. Um, and that's what we need. Um, more videos we don't need. More games, that, you know, that's immaterial. We need... P we need Clear, simple directions. That's why I was saying, when people go to the front page of Board Game Geek, there has to be an explore welcome or 
new here? And if they click that, they go to a page saying uh, what I just said. If there's a game you like, here, do a search for it, find it, and then see if you like other games. If you're not sure what you like, go to this forum and just describe yourself and what you're looking for, and you'll start getting recommendations. The best way to get recommendations is not watching channels. Although, please, like and subscribe. Dorado runs through. Um, It's talking to people. And again, if you go back and watch my top 10, or not, the, the Rotto first 10 games, that is right. I mean, if I do that search, Rotto first 10 games. If I do that search, yep, uh, it comes right up. It says 30 minute long video. You will watch. This is a video of me having to learn that lesson the hard way. Anyway, though. Okay. Hey, Nigel. <clears throat> Recently, Matt Melissa McCock a.k.a. Room 51, published a video. Uh, see link here. Oh, dear. my uh, The link didn't copy over when I copied from the email. But you know what? I've seen this video. I, I'm aware of the video. Um, right. About the marriage mechanism in Everdell. Everdell uh, not only excludes anything but heteronormative marriage between players, but actively promotes it by including goals that can be achieved by players having husband-wife combinations. Uh, the issue was originally raised some years ago by fans, but it seems designers, publishers have done little, if anything, to address it. Um, I would agree. Uh, uh, I complained about a similar thing in a in an Old West simulation that came out from Rio Grande Games last year. And I got pilloried for it, of course, because it uh, marriage is a major portion of that game, and it does not allow same-sex marriages, even though that was totally a thing that was not uncommon in the American West, same-sex marriages on the frontier. And yet it was completely... The rules even went out of their way to say, we're not emulating that because it was the American West. As if it didn't happen, when in fact it was incredibly common. So yeah, that was that was really unfortunate. And um, right, anyway though. So continuing on from Nigel, in the comments of uh, Room Fifty One's video, Jamie Stegmeier, you know, Mr. Stonemeyer Games, revealed that in the upcoming expansion for Viticulture, he'll be addressing a similar problem he had with the Mama Papa card combinations of Viticulture. And he said, "quote The intent of the new mechanism is for people to shuffle all the cards together, meaning that you would randomly end up with two mamas, two papas, or a mama and a papa." Um, all right, as part of setup, your, your, your starting special power goals are based on the mama and papa cards you get. Uh, but it would be super easy to say, remove all male cards so that you could have mama-mama pairings if you want. So anyway, uh, Nigel continues. Do you feel that other publishers' designers should take a cue from Jamie Stegmeier and seek to revise games that, intentionally or not, exclude any part of the community? Um, should they? No. Could they? Yes. I don't. I, I see it as, a, as an opportunity to just make things better for everyone. And if you have the opportunity, why not take it? Should you be run out of the industry if you don't? No, it's not the end of the world. But why not? It's just an exciting opportunity for several reasons. To make games that are more inviting and open and inclusive for a wider range of players... That's just good business. Um, if you want to sell to more people, uh, find ways to make your game more interacting in, in, in and in, in enhancing and inciting to them. Also, anything that we can, anything that you can do as an artist to normalize um, people who feel like they are on the margins, who are um, you know on the outs, and who feel like they do not have representative representation in our modern society. Not feel like, who simply do not. It's just, it's just a good karma thing to do to try to make their lives a little bit better by allowing them, one, to feel like you care about them as customers and as people, and two, the more people 
are exposed to um, you know lifestyles that are different than their own, the more it becomes natural. One of the most important TV shows by far of the last 20, 30 years is Will and Grace. Because Will and Grace, um, you know, which, uh, you know, featured, or I have to admit, I, sadly, I never watched Will and Grace, but it, it featured gay um, couples as just a normal thing. And it was a, a popular sitcom on a popular night, and it ran for years, and it was very well loved. And I believe it had a sizable impact on society, and th- and it's wonderful that that show existed. Um, you know, another one, uh, you know, I draw. I, I think The Sopranos is an incredibly important TV show. Forget about all the stuff about mafias and you know really deep intricate plots and you know avant-garde filmmaking. Forget about all of that. Sopranos did so much to normalize the idea of of therapy. The therapy doesn't have to be viewed as a weakness. That Tony Soprano, the most macho guy in the universe, could actually get something out of therapy and keep going back. The more audiences are exposed to these ideas that are outside their normal day-to-day life, the better it is for society as a whole. The broader, more wide open and inviting we are, and the richer and more meaningful our society becomes. It's just good for everybody. Those who are on the outs, those who are marginalized, who feel like a door is being opened and they're being welcomed, who doesn't want that? But also for the people who are already inside the room, getting to expand their view of the world and um, allow their brain synapses to create new connections that make them a richer person. It's good for everybody. So yes, board gamers, board game developers don't have to do it. They, but could they do it? Yeah. And I don't, man, I, I, I just don't want to shame them for not doing it. I mean, I, I, I don't begrudge the developers of Everdell for having a blind spot about this. It just didn't occur to them because you know what? Uh, 50 years ago, um, you know, people just like to pretend that gay people didn't exist at all. And important milestones in art, like Will and Grace, help change that. And I, I think people can change and grow. So, yeah, I would love to... I mean, I, 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 wherever they have the opportunity to, by all means, please do. I mean, you know, The Sims, for my video game background, is so hugely important. Because it allowed for same-sex couples as well. And that was massive. It was unheard of before then. And now, it's not really that big a deal. And Will Wright and Maxis, uh, you know, they... I mean, they should be so proud of themselves for how they've improved the world. And board... I mean, board games are not as big as TV shows or video games. But, hey, everybody can help with this. So anyway, yeah, a good on Jamie for doing that. For finding a way to do that. Anyway, though, continuing on with Nigel. It seems some publishers are taking steps... When it comes to story-driven games, like uh, Isaac Childress' recent announcements about Frosthaven being more inclusive, but perhaps these considerations are sometimes overlooked in Euro games, where more attention is paid to mechanisms uh, than settings, etc. Uh, I would agree. Yeah, I think we could, we could, we we all have the potential to do more, to ask for more, and for publishers to um, you know take a step out of the normal prescribed, um, you know, just fill in the blanks and do a little bit more. Um, yeah, like uh, you know, I want to see more games about uh, like oh, pursuit of happiness allows same sex coupling, and it's that's awesome that it allows that. I I, I want to see more of this, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, more just normalization, and um, yeah, 
And so uh, hats off to Jamie Stegmeyer for doing it. Hopefully the developers of Everdell will give some serious consideration to this as well. Good job on Room 51, because I remember when that video went up, it caused quite a stir. But uh, you know, uh, my, 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 my hat's off to them for really pushing the envelope and helping the industry grow as a whole. I try to do the same wherever I can. I admit... I've got blind spots. You know, I grew up. I'm a product of the society I grew up in, so I don't necessarily always, um, you know, think about these things. But I appreciate when it's done, and it makes me more excited. Um, you know, a deeper, richer, broader tapestry to play in. Who doesn't want that? Anyway, and thanks uh, for the pictures of Charlie and Sky. Jen will love them as always. And as always, folks, you can see all the dog pictures at dogs.rado.com or doggo.rado.com. All right. Uh, Charlie and Sky are awesome. Paul. Hello, Paul. Right. So Paul says, this may have been asked before, how do I feel about folks doing uh, do-it-yourself print and plays of -of out-of-print games? Um, Paul himself has done so with Glory to Rome, so there's friends, and he could have a copy to play with. And he'll be first in line to purchase if it ever somehow comes back to the print. He does own Matai and I, which is kind of an offshoot of Glory to Rome. And while it's a good little game, has a lot of similarities. It doesn't quite feel the same and doesn't handle the larger player count that Glory to Rome does. Oh, yeah, Matai and I is neat, but uh, you know, Matai and I is no Glory to Rome. Make no mistake about it. Neither is Import Export or Fort. I mean, there's a lot of games that kind of capture some of the spirit, but Glory to Rome is it's a once-in-a-generation game, and it's just so awful that it's unavailable uh, without having to pay ridiculously huge premiums. Um, at least in English. I think you can still get foreign copies without too much trouble. Anyway, though, continuing. Paul personally thinks it's okay when there's no avenue to purchase a game that benefits the game creators. But Paul was surprised when he heard the Dice Tower talk about this uh, topic, and Sam Healy was specifically against it, even with out-of-print games. And that struck Paul as odd. Paul, it strikes me as odd as well. Spoiler alert, I'm sure you're going to ask me what do I think. Uh, But anyway... Uh, Paul doesn't see the ethical issue of printing and playing a game when it's no longer available through retail channels, even when a game is available through retail channels. What about the user who creates a handcrafted version of the game? I've seen some amazing handcraft versions of games created by folks who wanted to bling out the game, and even by folks who didn't have the means to purchase the game. I don't think it's an ethical problem if they're not reselling the handiwork. That's it. Right there. You hit the nail on the head that I would... Oh, continue on. Uh, Paul says, you've probably addressed this before. I can, I can extrapolate your answer based on my opinions about Tabletop Simulator, but you're interested in your opinion. Paul, I am right there with you. I don't see a problem with it at all as long as players are doing it for themselves. Surely, of course, in a Glory to Rome's case, a game, a, one of the best card games in human history... That's a bit of hyperbole, but it's still, it's a very good game. It's all but impossible to get. It's such a shame. I I don't have any problem. I don't see any um, uh, issue with that at all. Uh, You know, making your, making your own version of it. And, um, and honestly, strictly speaking, I don't have a problem with you taking a deck of 52 cards and repurposing them to make your own copy of the mind or, um, oh, what was the hot one? The crew. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, sure, I mean, in a perfect world, you should go out and buy a copy of The Crew, but, I mean, you could just take a deck of cards and just you, a Sharpie and make your own version of The Crew. It'd be ugly and crude, but I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it until you turn around and try to sell it and, um, you know, try to make money off it uh, by reselling the handiwork. Uh, you know, and that's my problem with Tabletop Simulator. I have no problem, I think I've said in the past, with people making their own modifications of Tabletop Simulator for their own use. And, and and maybe for their friends. 
That's, I think I'm fine with that. But as soon as it's put on Steam and millions of people can download it, then I have a problem with it. That's the issue. I also never had a problem back in the early days of VCRs recording a TV show on Wednesday night and then taking it to school the next day and sharing it with my friends so they could watch it because they didn't record it themselves. I have no problem with that either. Um, and I'm not a lawyer. I do not play one on TV. I can't really speak to the legality of this. What I do have a problem with is me recording it, making copies of that, and then selling it to my friends the next day. That crosses, for me personally, a, a, a weird squiggly line. Other people might cross differently. Apparently Sam Healy does, but I think that's totally fine. And I think it's totally fine even with games that are readily available. Um... Sure, you should I, buy a copy of The Crew before you make your own really cool blinged-out version. But if you can or you don't want to, I mean, you're not breaking any laws at all. And I, I don't really think you're a morally dubious person because you can't afford to buy your own copy of The Crew. And so instead, you decide to just make your own because you could recreate your own. And then you just want to play that with your friends. You know, life's too short. Have a good time. Um, you know, people cannot trademark game... Uh, gameplay concepts. They can trade art and logos and all of that, but you know, game design you cannot trademark, and I think I largely agree with that sentiment. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. And I'd really be interested to hear why Sam Healy is so vehemently against it. But uh, go figure. Anyway, uh, you can, Paul continues, my talks through podcasts are great content for Paul to listen to while walking the pooch. He likes the... Or Paul likes personal nature... Oh, wait. Oh, okay. No. Um, yes, yes. This. All right, so that was your game-related stuff. The rest of the stuff. We'll, uh, we'll wait for the rest of Paul's message and his wonderful pup pictures when Jen gets here. So we'll cover that later. Uh, all right. Moving on. Hello, Benjamin. Ben says, just listen to the latest Jen's Jog, uh, which is a new show that we're doing for Patreon backers, where every month Jen and I get together, I remind her of all the games we played over the last four weeks, and then she rates them all. She gives them one to five star ratings. So anyway, in the most recent episode, uh, Jen and I were talking about the role player expansion, um, Fiends and Familiars, that we had just played. And we talked a bit about dice rolling when you fight the monsters. Anyway, that conversation got Ben thinking about the dice in Trois. Uh, he's only played Trois a couple times, solo, so he's not necessarily an expert. But it feels like, to him, that even with the dice mitigation mechanisms, you can flip dice and stuff like that, rolling high numbers is almost always better than rolling low, because it means you get to do more actions. And he contrasts that with Castles of Burgundy, where every roll at least allows you to do something, even if it's not necessarily what you want. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to admit, I didn't know you could play Trois solo. Is that true? Did you make up your own solo rules? I'm more interested in that now. Board Game Geek, Troyes. Does it have solo rules? It does. Oh my goodness. I guess, um, you know, back when I, you know, when we first started with Troyes, I wasn't paying attention to solo at all. I'm really, I'm curious how that works. So I can't speak to that. But here's the deal. Um, oh, I, want, I need to go back. There we go. Uh, all right, I, I just, for if you're watching on Kickstarter, I, I flashed something from an email that's uh, coming up um, that we'll be talking about with Jen that I've already taken a look at. Anyway, though, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. That really threw me for a loop. What were we just talking about? Oh, Troy, 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 Troy Dice. Okay, when you're playing Troy multiplayer, it, I would agree, strictly speaking, not always, 
strictly speaking, higher value dice are more, higher value dice are more valuable. Um, there's a few cases, you know, like building the cathedral, you need low value dice. There's a few things where you need low value dice. And you know, maybe the design can even be better if there was more use for low value dice. But I don't think it's a problem because when you're playing multiplayer, a sizable portion of the game is buying dice from each other. The dice that I roll that I end up putting in front of me, I don't think of those as my dice. I think of those as a public pool of dice. And hey, um, you know, these are dice that I can get cheaper than other dice. And um, you know, if I roll a bunch of high dice, chances are somebody is going to buy those dice from me. If you roll high dice and I roll low, chances are I'm going to buy high dice from you. I think it's an intrinsic in the design of the game that dice have relative value um, so that commerce can come about. Because that's what the game is trying to replicate. Some people have better stuff than others. And if everybody had dice, no matter what, I can always use these dice somehow. Whether it's high or low, I'll find some use for them. Then the game becomes less interactive. You are less incentivized to spend your precious, precious coins to buy dice from somebody else. So, yes, I would agree that is part of the design, but it is a crucial part of the design in multiplayer. Solo, I have no idea how it works, but I suspect it's much less interesting because you're not playing against another human being that you're trying to beat. What are you doing? Are you are you playing for high scores? I'm not sure. So maybe, as a solo game, Twa is not as good as it could be. Um, or at least not unless it like emulates multiple players, because that's Twa is such a wonderful game because of that interaction. Oh, you got a lot of fives and sixes. You, If you roll those, and you see your, your opponents roll low, you know full well, you're about to get some coins coming your way because you're not going to keep all those dice. And um, so you're already starting to think, right, well, how am I going to use those coins that are coming my way? Because I'm going to lose some of these dice. That's one of the things that makes the game great. And it's, it's crucial to the design. Hello, Anthony. Anthony says that I said and I believe you, that I'm willing to sell all my Marvel Champion stuff despite loving most of the expansions because I don't like the recent expansions. I, 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 did I say that, Anthony? I, I admit, I do tend to be a bit dramatic sometimes, sure. But I, I'm not ready to do that yet. I am, But I am slowly, as time goes on, getting more and more... I'm falling out of love with Marvel Champions because of continued choices they are the developers are making that are getting it farther and farther and farther away from the promise of the original game. The game is getting less elegant with every new villain, just gets more complex and just needlessly fiddly. Um, the game is getting harder and catering to hardcore people. And they seem to have completely abandoned any attempt at what made the game so special, the thematic representation of the personal lives of the heroes. They just don't seem to care about that at all anymore. And that breaks my heart. So, you know, as I see this, and it seems like there is no inclination to about-face these trends. But anyway, sorry. That's where I'm at with it right now. Uh, but it's still... I still love Marvel superheroes, and it is still a really good puzzly uh, game. Anyway, though. Uh, you, all right. How, anyway, so I answer this question. How can designers avoid this happening with their fan base? And um, that's a good question. Well, in the case of Marvel Champions, stop changing it. I mean, and I admit, I mean, it's a tricky thing. I mean, a lot of people want a lot of different things. And... I have seen very, very few fans of Marvel Champions complain about the constant step away, the, the, the minimizing of alter egos, which again is the killer app of the game as far as I'm concerned. It's what made me fall in love with the game, that I, I care as much about Peter Parker as I do about Spider-Man. Or 
you know, not quite, but you get the idea. And, um, you know, with, with the new Guardians characters, there's... I mean, geez, when I saw Quicksilver and the one Alter Ego card in the game isn't his daughter. Quicksilver has a daughter who is a superhero. Why isn't her? Why isn't she in his deck as an ally that's somehow tied to Alter Ego stuff with him? Clearly, they don't care about Alter Ego, and for them, it's just, oh, we got to tick a box. we got to throw an Alter Ego card in. That's what it feels like to me, and it breaks my heart. How can designers avoid that? Stop eliminating the th- most special thing about your game. Please. But I... I don't begrudge them the fact that, I mean, what I'm complaining about is something I think maybe the majority of their fan base doesn't care about. The majority of Marvel's uh, fan base cares about coming up with really cool, intricate, clockwork, complex puzzles to solve. A lot of them play solo. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the amount of time people complain about the Hulk, well, they're, that means they're just playing solo and they're not happy. Because the Hulk is a lot of fun to play, uh, you know, with other players, as I have discovered myself. Um, and I have tried playing it solo, and it's not much fun playing solo. So the amount of heat they get for having such a terrible character just shows... Uh, but anyway, sorry, sorry. I'm just all over the place. I, I, uh, ah, I'm getting scatterbrained. Your question. How can designers avoid this happening to their fan base? With their fan base. On some level, you can't. Because the bigger a fan base, the more... You, you just have to identify what does the majority of your fan base want and give that to them. It is a tricky thing, because the longer a game sticks around, the most vocal, outspoken members of your fan base are the ones who have bought everything, have played everything, have, you know, um, you know mastered the skills of their game. And you know what they demand? They demand harder, more complex stuff, because they need new challenges, because what came in the original box feels like child's play to them. And so, I mean, on some level, I can't begrudge Fantasy Flight for saying, oh, the most vocal, outspoken people, fans of our game, seem to want that, so I guess this is what we should do, and that's what they're doing. And too bad, so sad for casual players. But what they really need to do is identify, are they certain, if they want to have the best-selling game they can, do they really believe that those outspoken, hardcore, do-or-die players who buy everything... Is that the majority of the of the people who are actually buying the game? I suspect it's not. I suspect that there is. I mean, Marvel Marvel superheroes are a pop culture phenomenon, and you know the original the box the five characters that came in the box the three actually Ultron and Claw were maybe a bit more complex than they should have been, but even still, compared to the stuff that's coming out now, um, those characters were you know a child's play by comparison. It feels to me that they are no longer chasing casual Marvel Champions fans, which is what I would consider myself to be. It's up to them to decide if that's the right decision, if if that's what gets them the most sales. I suspect they would be better off uh, catering more to people like me, who care about Peter Parker as much as Spider-Man, who are entranced by the fantasy that is playing out on the table rather than the puzzle that is trying to be solved. And, but you know that how do they how do they figure that out? You talk to your customers. You you do surveys. You um you know I, you you find out. You go to uh, you you talk to friendly local game stores who um who know what the people who are coming through the door like. And you and and maybe Fantasy Flight has done all that, and they have determined yes, seventy five percent of our fan base, of people who are spending money on this, are hardcore, and this is what they want. And if they've determined that's what it is, and they're do- then they're doing the right thing. And they just have to leave 
casual players like me on the wayside. It's a shame, especially because, I mean, the, the most egregious thing to me with um, uh, Galaxy's Most Wanted, the least, most recent expansion that is so brack-breakingly hard that even the hardcore players are saying, man, this is a little hard. But then they're all saying in the second sentence, oh, but you know what? A year from now, we'll all think this is too easy because they're all crazy hardcore players. And of course, they're, and they're, they'll be the ones that speak the most because they're the most hardcore. I don't understand why the developers of uh, Marvel Champions have not introduced proper, easy, or standard, or introductory difficulty rules. They have introduced, um, you know, there's normal, and then there's hard, and then there's super hard, and then there's quasi-hard, and then there's quasi-super-legendary extra-hard. They have put a lot of thought into making the game harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. But they've given no thought to making it more casual and friendly and inviting. And that just drives me nuts. And it just seems like bad business sense to me. And I don't understand why they're not doing it. But hey, they don't pay me to do it. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they've given this a lot more thought than I have. Anyway, though. Next up from Anthony. What's one mechanism from Shadow and Crossfire I'd like to see in other games? The best thing about Shadow Run Crossfire... It's a dumb little thing. It's the fact that it's a deck builder. When you buy a card, it goes directly um, into the top of your deck. So you'll have it immediately. Um, you know, uh, Dominion is a great design, but it's so much about delayed gratification. And, you know, Shadowrun Crossfire, there is no opportunity to delay that gratification. You know, I mean, it's an in-your-face game. You need that gun now, because you're always on the razor's edge about to die in that game. And that's not something you see in a lot of games, and I really like it there. Um, Shadowrun Crossfire, as a, as a, as a huge alternative or contrast to uh, Marvel Champions is so elegant and clean and simple and smooth playing and yet it's as hard and as deep and as rich as anything Marvel Champions has ever done. And Marvel Champions used to be a lot closer to Shadowrun Crossfire, but it's getting further and further away from that with every expansion, just going more rules, more special case exceptions, etc., etc., where Crossfire is just clean and pure and elegant and deep, 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 deep. Other stuff I really think I'd love to see Crossfire. Um, let's see. I mean, besides just the, the really simple, obvious thing. Oh, I love the fact that um, this is a game where, I mean, you know, it's, it's a cooperative game where offense is the best defense because as you take out enemies, after you, you know, the, uh, the game plays over three waves. You got to beat the first wave, then the second wave, then the third wave. When you beat a wave, you get an automatic heal. Everybody on your team does. And that is so important. That is so crucial. Everything about Shadowrun Crossfire is getting kills as fast as you can to get money, to buy more stuff, and to cross those waves so you can get healing. Because yes, there are other ways you can heal, but those are slow. And if you are healing yourself with Doc Wagon or stuff like that, you are not making forward progress. You are delaying an inevitable loss, as opposed to racing full speed towards a narrow and exciting win. And you know the simple trick of, hey, when I take out a wave, everybody gets to heal a little bit is huge. It's gigantic. I love it. But probably more than anything else, the thing I love most about Shadowrun Crossfire, which it breaks my heart that they pretty much broke it with the second edition, is the... Um, oh, what do you call I forget what it's called. If somebody gets KO'd, then um, you can... Um, is it called pull out or is it evacuate? The, the game goes into a sudden death mode where, um, you know, if... You know, I only play it two players. So if my partner gets KO'd, I have to survive for one round. And if we do that, we don't get a win, 
but we don't get a loss either. Instead, we get this incredibly exciting, dramatic, cinematic moment that my, my teammate is KO'd. I literally have to pull them out of fire and get to safety. And it's my it's actually it's one of my favorite moments of the game when that happens. It means you're not doing as well as you should, but it's by far the most exciting, dramatic moment, and it's just great. And it feels so good. And it's so ter- it's the most terrifying thing you will run across. And the only way to survive it is to anticipate that it's coming and prepare for it. Prepare to turn a loss into a, uh, a quasi-win. I think it's really cool. I'm, su- I'm sure people must have hated it because, like I said, they kind of took it out of the, uh, of the, of the second edition, which, again, broke my heart. And it's too bad because I think it's one of the coolest things about that game. Okie doke. Parker. Hello, Parker. The default short version of the Rotto Runs Through Code of Conduct that appears on every video is to Parker emphasizing the negative. Uh, When multiple Rotto Runs Through videos are listed on a page, the negative aspect really jumps out as it's repeated many times scrolling down the page. I know what you're talking about. For uh, consideration, I reworded it to focus on the positive. Now, okay, so you didn't include it. Let me go on ahead uh, so folks know what Parker's talking about. Let's just go to any of my... I mean, heck, you can see it. Um, Every one of my videos on my channel starts with important note, rude, dismissive, or diminishing comments are not allowed. And then if you uh, you expand the whole thing, what you can then further see is if you cannot treat everyone with kindness and respect, this is not the place for you. Please see conduct.rado.com for more. And then it says, hey, this is a game about blah, blah. Here's the links for the extended play, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and so Parker points out, it's kind of aggressive. And I don't disagree. Um, you know, it, this came from me trying to take a literally very aggressive stance against something that I discovered far too late, that my permissive laid-back um, moderation of my channel had led me to being a haven for toxic elements. And when I... When I you know, and I... You know, I'd kind of heard that, but I never really felt it. I never really seen it. I never really appreciated what my lack of action had led to. And when I finally came face to face with this, you know, back uh, in February, and you know, and I, I had my my comeuppance, and I realized I could do better, and I released episode seventy of the podcast, and I talked about what I was trying to do, and one of them was coming up with a code of conduct. I decided to take an aggressive anti-troll stance and just shout. Get the F out of here. Uh, you, I've been a safe haven for you for far too long. Over. Done. Go. Do not come back. I am not engaging with you anymore. And so, I mean, that's kind of where that, where my opening... And anyway, I, I won't disagree. It is kind of negative because it was, it was me um, shouting, Get off my lawn, you um, undesirables. And by undesirables, I mean trolls and, um, you know, people who would issue death threats and stuff like that. Anyway, a Parker suggests an alternative, uh, uh, you know, a, a more positive-focused one. And here's what he suggests. Important note, we are a polite, inclusive, and encouraging community. I'm actually kind of changing this a little bit for how I would say it. Uh, He just said, We are polite, inclusive, and encouraging. We treat each other with kindness and respect. Comments that follow these guidelines are permitted. If this sounds like your kind of place, welcome. Um, And I would totally put a smiley face there. He did not put a smiley face there. So anyway, um, it's it's an interesting suggestion. I have to admit, I I don't really know. Um, I got a lot of advice in the uh, wake of episode 69, uh, where... I made huge mistakes that led to real pain being um, delivered on people who I really like. And I realized I had to 
change my, my modus operandi, and I had to open my eyes to things that I had turned a blind eye to in the past. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd got was it's... You know, I mean, one thing a lot of people were upset with me about was being kind of kumbaya with uh, the alt-right. Uh, you know, and folks who would show up and, you know, and, and, and basically spread disinformation. Um, and, you know, it's, oh, well, let me uh, engage you in conversation and point out where you're wrong. And in doing that, I was creating an avenue that is actively not inclusive. It's interesting. I just talked about that question a little bit ago uh, about why can't the industry be more inclusive, more inviting for folks who feel marginalized and on the edges but want to come into the party. And by allowing these elements into the party... And staying in the party and then talking to them is putting them on a pedestal and um, giving them a platform to, uh, you know, to basically make the world a worse place, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, so I stopped doing it. And I decided to make a very strong declarative stance saying, get out, get out and don't come back. You, you're not welcome here. And in part... I'm doing that as much to send a message to them as to also send a message to folks who always felt like, oh, Rado's comment fields are not a safe place for me because Rado just lets it all hang loose. And I wanted to send a clear message that I was not kumbaya anymore, that I was going to take a hard stance on this and, you know, clean house. And I wonder if I had started with, hey, this is just a cool place for people to hang out and talk about games. If that's what you want to do, come on in. That doesn't make the statement in the same way as bad elements, bad faith actors, sea lions, go and do not come back. Yes, that's very negative, but I do think for people who were put off by my lack of action in the past, they view that as a really positive and empowering thing. That I am clearly um, you know, drawing a line and showing what side of the line I stand on. And so that's why I do think that there is a way to look at my quasi-aggressive stance in a fairly positive light. So anyway, Parker, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm definitely open to hearing more back and forth. But I kind of feel like right now... In, in this day and age, it's important to make to draw a clear line, you know, this far and no further, which is why I've worded it the way I have. And it is a bit negative, but it is to send a message to more than just the trolls, but to the people that I actively want to support and be an ally to, that I am ready to be mean to the trolls, um, even if that puts a kind of a harsh edge. I don't know. Uh, anyway, though, folks... Phew, yikes. That was some heavy stuff to end on. Uh, thanks, Parker. But if you hang on a little bit now, I think we'll move on to some more lightweight stuff when we get into a few more game questions uh, and we bring Jen into the fold. Hang on, we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Jen is here. You'll have to take my word for it because she is hidden behind this big white wall of text. Honey, that is not me doing some kind of weird reach around kind of trick to, you know, pretend that I'm, you know, you know doing any of that kind of stuff. That's Jen. She, that was apparently Jen, I guess. I don't know what you were just doing. Jen was doing bunny ears off camera. She just did them again to prove that she exists. You're not doing any knitting today. You're just ready to give 100% of your focus 
to these questions? I think so. Okay, well, before we get to that, there were some dog pics that came in the gaming stuff, so let's go on ahead and scroll back up. Oh, do, 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 do. We have our monthly visit from Charlie and Skye. Lovely. Looking lovely, as always. Oh. And then we've got this whole section here. Um, right, where are there? Is there uh, Arado Talks Your Podcasts are great. Walking the dogs. And this was all from, oh, I've forgotten who, from Paul. Likes personal nature. Discussion of the loss of dogs, very emotional reaction. It was very helpful for him in 2019 when he lost both of his elderly dogs. 15 and 18 years old. Wow. wow. Cooper was 15, his first dog. And I fell in love in Cali. Uh, well, all right. Um, yeah. Uh, Paul wrote a very... Uh, should I read the whole thing? I think they can read it if they want to. Well, yeah, but the podcast people can't. Oh, of course. Because remember, this is for the video that people can see this. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing. All right. Discussion of the loss of dogs. Very emotional reaction. It's very helpful to Paul in 2019 when they lost their, both of their elderly dogs. Cooper, the 15-year-old, was the, was uh, Paul's first dog. And Paul's wife and he met while walking Cooper and uh, his dog and Callie, uh, her dog, at the time. So the loss was particularly poignant. Hearing us tear up about the loss of our various pets, and don't you make us do it right now, Paul, uh, was very helpful in feeling like you weren't, it wasn't alone in all-consuming grief. Felt like participating in a community on a loss, which is very comforting. Paul's met Jen and I at um, various conventions and cried on Jen's shoulder a bit about dogs. Do you remember that, honey pie? It's okay if you don't. We meet a lot. Paul, mm. Jen is mortified that you can't remember. But you think I would. We meet hundreds of people. It's it's hard to remember. It might also be that I didn't want to particularly remember. Oh that. yeah, that, you know because that's a hard thing to bear. Yeah, but so um, I apologize. Yep. But uh, they finally jumped back in the saddle and adopted a two-year-old Welsh uh, Pembroke Corgi who needed a home. Callie was a Corgi mix, uh, so the opportunity to rescue a Corgi really tugged at the heartstrings. His name is Beauregard. Also Bo, Bobo Buffington, Bozo, Bobo Fett, and Bobby Wan Kenobi. Uh, he is a perfect gentleman. He's a complete joy. I'm glad I read all this since uh, we got him. Makes me remember what we've missed by not having a dog in our life. Attached our pictures of Cooper, Callie, and Bo. Thanks for all you do. The podcast brightens the day. Uh, thanks for continuing to take stands, principal stands. All right, so this is is a Bobby Wan Kenobi, um, which is just, very wise. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, the solo corgi, and then the other picks. Cooper is on the right, and Callie is on. That's a corgi mix. Did he say what it was a corgi mix with? Gosh, that is the biggest half corgi I have ever seen, and, and the fuzziest. Yes, wow. Callie was a special pup, as was. I'm sorry, I've forgotten. Oh, Cooper, 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 Cooper. There's a whole. A game named after uh, Cooper's Island is named after a dog. Um, all right. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that, Paul. Okay. Good dogs. But now we are moving on to gaming questions, and there will be more dog pictures coming, honey pie. Okay. Nat says, "Do you think too many Euro-style games use the? Actually, I didn't. I wasn't sure if you would have anything to say about this, but I thought you might. Okay. So, um, do we think that Euro games use victory points too often? Uh, you know, game. You know, and uh, games at a certain point, and whoever has the most victory points wins. And would we like to see more games using other win conditions? I should point this a little bit more towards Jen. Um, just adjusting the mic a little bit. Uh, such as, first to complete a number of objectives. Uh, when Nat got into board gaming, he found a number of games that used victory points as the win condition. Frustrating! 
But now Nat appreciates the uh, mechanism's versatility with multiple things uh, in the game, rewarding points. So, Honey Pie, do you are you are you burnt out on the old victory point chase, and would you like to see more? You know, race to complete objectives, or I mean, actually, it's always going to in that case, it's always going to be a race of some sort. Whether it's race to complete objectives, race to get across a finish line. Yeah, we've played a couple of games like that recently, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes up every once in a while um, um, where there's alternate win it's conditions. It's a surprise that it's always a surprise. Like, ah, oh, geez, you've got you've only got one more thing you need to do, and then that's true. So yes. I only have this turn and next turn really because I can see that you're going to finish. Yeah, what Nat is really drawing a parallel between isn't about victory points; it's about overall structure. Does the game have a fixed time limit mm-hmm. or does it have a variable time limit? And that's really the core thing. Yeah. So do you prefer knowing yes. there will be five rounds yes. with ten turns in yes. each one? And I get my full allotment of turns because usually you get an extra turn. <laughs> Most of the game, very few games actually do that. Okay, but I think... But it is true that in a game that it doesn't, I do try to ensure that I get the extra turn um, because I pay more attention to what Jen is doing than she does to me, and somehow I still lose most of the time. Um, but so you are suggesting you prefer a fixed structure rather than a variable in condition. Because invariably, what happens is one of us will figure out that we're close to whatever the end game condition is. Yes. And then we'll mention it to the other yes. person. Yes. Very then, important. And then. That means we both go back over our last couple of turns to see if we've done it right. <laughs> oh, if we, oh well, I, now that you tell me that, I would have done the last three exactly. turns completely differently. Yes, yes, that's true. That does tend to happen. So even though I think that's trying to be a little surprise ending to the game as far as the designers are concerned, for us it means oh no, now we have to go re- revisit half of the game we've just played with yeah. an end to it ending sooner. Right. So I think that's incredibly frustrating. That's really interesting. So taking a step back towards Nat's question, then because that's the fundamental underlying structural question, you prefer victory points because victory points allow for a fixed game schedule. I mean, it doesn't have to be. I mean, I guess you could have a game where, no, we're going to play for five rounds and the winner is the one who completed the most objectives. But really, that's victory points. Mm-hmm. You know, With each objective being one point... It's still just a different way of saying, and or you get one point for doing game objectives or whatever. It really comes down to, it's not about the victory points, it's about the fixed ending versus not, and you 100% prefer fixed ending. Yes. I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm really glad um, I did bring this in here, because I might have just only focused on the victory points, and you got to the underlying thing. Well done, honey pie. Thank you. And uh, I, I think I tend to agree, too. I've got no problem with variable game length stuff and, and surprise ends and whatnot, but given my druthers... I think I prefer the fixed structure. Okay, we're here for five rounds. We're here for five years. We're here for five seasons. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be five. Um, mm-hmm. And because I mean, it's uh, it's fine. The ending kind of sneaking up on you, and we do our best to not have it be too negatively impactful. But yeah, who needs that extra stress? We're here to have fun. And uh, yeah, plus I, I can totally see it makes sense for you too, because of course you're very regimented in our day-to-day life and very all about organization and preparation and knowing exactly how everything is going to play out. So a game that doesn't conform to that is just not going to work as well for you. Yeah. Hmm. And I think oftentimes when we're playing those kinds of games, I'm just tootling along, doing my thing. Whee! And you say, oh, hey, if I do this, that means next turn I'm I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, ah, but all my building up of yeah. stuff yep, is yep, for yep. naught. Yes. And all you right. always, of course, try to end it as soon as possible. Because you know I go long game. Yes, Jen generally um, 
uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm the one who always, in a game where you can rush the end, I'm usually the one rushing the end. Uh, it just more fits my playstyle. I'm very much bird in the hand. Two in the bush? Eh, life's too short for those two in the bush. Take the one that's available right now. That's how I live my life. Jen does not. Um, so, Nat, we say more victory point games, please. I guess. Do you think that... Uh, do, do I think that Jen, and, that, uh, Jen and I are better at tactics or strategy... Uh, and do we prefer games which use more tactics or strategy? Do you need the definition of tactics and strategy? I think you should do it for the people. Tactics, uh, Nat continues, being defined as choices you make in the moment and strategy being an overall plan for the game. Yeah. I, Jen, I Maybe believe... We just answered that. I think we both prefer strategy over tactics. I think I am better at tactical decision-making than Jen. Uh, I, I think, Definitely. Uh, and I, I couldn't tell you why. I mean, because it's not like Jen's not capable of, of applying the same level of decision making. But yeah. what, what do you think? Why why am I better suited for tactics and you're better suited for strategy? I think just because you grew up in the um, video game industry. Oh. And there's a lot of very immediate things that have to be taken care of. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's it's easy for me to say why you're better at strategy. You just have more patience. You are ready, willing, and able, and enjoy grinding through all 50,000 permutations uh, that's applied to every single choice you can make, and every single worker placement spot you can fill, every single card you can play, mm-hmm. every single action you can choose. That's why you play the games. That's what you enjoy, yeah. um, trying to find that ideal, most efficient path towards victory points. And me, I like it up to a certain point, and I'm like, this sounds good. Let's just go with this. And it's why I will always lose a game that um, is stronger towards tactics. So that 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 that's stronger a reflection of me. Strategy. I'm sorry, what? You just said you lose a game that's stronger toward tactics. Uh, yes, I meant to say strategy. Thank you. So that's a reflection of me. But I'm curious, the reflection towards you, why you uh, don't... Why, why do I do better in a tactical situation? Um... Probably the bird in the hand versus the bush thing. I really prefer birds and bushes. But that's not that's not to say you can't look at a tactical situation that you know is going to be in flux. Is that the, I mean a, a tactical game generally the world is in flux more. There is less overall structure. There's it's it, less possible to make long-term planning yeah. and you have to focus on short-term. You have uh, that's what it is. A tactical game requires you to pivot. Ah and I like knowing... My, remember that game we just played recently where it was the lots and you got the 4 by 4 thing that, and I got the ice cream cones? I did the ice cream Oh, yes, yes, yes. That was uh, Juicy Fruits. Yes, we played right. a game of Juicy Fruits. So yeah. I started that game. I noticed there was an 18-point 4 thing. by 4 tile or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted that. And that was my plan. And that was what I was going for. And I was kind of a little bit ticked off <laughs> that you went and made that happen for yourself. Yeah. And then I had to figure out something else, which was, you know, obviously he should have been doing ice cream because ice cream is an ice cream monster. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, I ended up doing ice cream instead. Mm-hmm. But um, I was unhappy. I was a little sour grapes or not juicy fruit, sour sour fruit. Yeah. Anyway, um, for the first, what, 15 minutes of that game while you were... Ruining me, me, my yeah, plans. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, you could see it coming, too. And I told you, Honey Pie, you really need to change your plan, because I'm going to get that before you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, to- I warned you about it, too. And so, I'm curious. This indicates, you know, in the same way, you know, my 
a preference for tactics over strategy indicates is I have a lack of patience for the long-term planning. I enjoy it. I think I prefer a strategic game too, but I'm better at a tactical game. What does this represent about you? Your Do you have a certain inflexibility, would you say? Because, hey, I've made my plan. This is what's going to be. Stop throwing tactical decisions at me. I just want to focus on my overall strategy. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's, it's not that you're incapable of doing it. It's just that I'm less, I, I, I find less enjoyment in grinding through all the permutations that strategy requires. You find less, in, less fulfillment over having to pivot and say, I'm going to throw all of my thinking away and do this other thing now. Yep. And so it's that's a, a cycle. I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's a waste of my preparation. Yes. You're literally having to throw it away. Um, because you'll still put the same level of strategic thinking into a tactical game and then be constantly stymied that it doesn't pay off because you're constantly having to throw it away every other yes, turn. Yes, and frustrated and cranky about it. Interesting. So it's not... I mean, I, again, and I could... If I were willing to put the time in, I could um, really work out my strategies as well as you can. I think we are generally fairly well-matched gamers. It's just strategy tends towards you. And I never really thought about why tactics work better for me. Yeah. You just... And this is why we like to play multiplayer solitaire. So I can just go chugging along on my yeah. own little path. Yep. Good questions, Nat. Thank you. Uh, paused, caused some uh, self-reflection. <laughs> Very enjoyable. Okay. Let's move on to Woo! Mac, who has a literal snow beagle, oh. Pongo. What a cutie. That is a cutie patootie. Uh, I can see Pongo was enjoying himself. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned uh, elsewhere that Pongo really likes digging in the snow. <gasps> and that... Um, I don't know, uh, Mac, if you know about our snow bee girls. Uh, um, you know, if, if you... If you yeah, literally the, f- the beagles. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I love working... May love your beagle content even more. I, I, mean, I don't know if Mac, if you know. Yes, he's he's content. He said it. And oh, 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 saw the old ones. Yeah, those were literally. For folks who don't know, if you go to youtube.com slash Rotto and then go to the videos and then sort by oldest video, so the first videos ever, the first two videos on my channel have nothing to do with board games because it was years later. The first two videos are um, are uh, Dobby and, and Tallulah. T- just frolicking around for 15 minutes because we had an un- unseasonably super deep snow and we went them out and they just went crazy. Neither of them ever seen anything like it and it's awesome. And um, thank you, Mac. It, it brings back fond memories for both of us remembering that day. Anyway, uh, Mac continues to say, it seems like there's a lack of dog-themed board games, especially compared to how many cat titles we have. <laughs> uh, why do we think that is? Uh, Mac would love more uh, dog or beagle representation in gaming. Maybe he's missing the ones that are already there. He knows about Beagle or Bagel, which is really more of a party game. And always amuses him. Uh, it isn't a gamer game. Uh, do you have a favorite dog or pet-themed game? Well, I mean, I would certainly say, uh, yeah, Calico and Isle of Cats are both amazing games. And there's no dog-themed game that comes close to them. To answer yeah. your last question, do you have any thoughts about um, pet-themed games in particular? Only our favorite one. What's that? I can't think of the name of it right this time. Agricola? No. Um, would they, they're in cages. Oh, Dungeon Pets. There you go. Dungeon Pets. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's a pet-themed game, sort of. A <laughs> uh, very different type of pet. Um, yeah, there were some that... There was a Dalmatian in a Fireman's game. And, yeah, you occasionally see dogs making little guest appearances. Yeah. I mean, you can have dogs as pets in um, Caverna, you know, the sequel to Agricola. So occasionally that kind of stuff shows up. But there's certainly very, very few there where was, the whole game is focused on dogs. Yeah, there was, was the... there was the uh, We were playing we were dog driving. catchers. Yeah. Except no, we, weren't, we weren't dog catchers in the evil traditional sense. Yeah. We were, um, you know, habitat owners that were trying to rehome them and, and the whole nine yards. That was a really nice little game. It was a little light. It was very gateway-ish. I'm trying to remember. I think it was literally just called Dogs. 
I believe that was the title of it. Uh, but it was published in Brazil. I don't know if it ever got a wider print run. Or maybe... No, I think it went on Kickstarter. I'm not sure if that's available. It was a nice little gateway-style economic simulation about catching strays and then nursing them back to health and then finding new homes for them. And that's how you scored points. And that was lovely. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, but to his underlying question, honey, do you have any thoughts... Uh, you know about you know the psychology of board game development or board game audiences. There, I mean, because he's right. There are there is a decent representation of cat themed games. It's interesting. Uh, a few months ago, uh, yeah. I did a poll on YouTube, and I got like like ten thousand responses. And it was you know amongst you know people who subscribe to my channel, and therefore they're into board games. It was ten thousand or so, maybe even more responses. And the question was, um, do you have dog, cats, both, or neither? And because I was just curious, put it to the rest. I mean, our board gamers, mm -hmm. and it was a huge sample size, <laughs> and it was pretty close, with a slight nudge to dogs. There were there were a slightly higher percentage of dog owners than cat owners. What about uh, bothers? And oh yeah, there was a, there was a high percentage of those too. But I mean, you know, ignoring that, I mean, because I just wanted to put that on there. Okay, but what about the nunners? Yeah, I can go look it up let's if you want. All That's right, let's get to that. Uh, let's see, how would I find that? I'd have to go to Google, and then I'd have to... Where would I go? I'd go to my behind-the-scenes channel-y stuff, and then I'd have to go to my posts instead of my uploads. And it was... Yeah, uh, it's going to be on the second page, probably. Uh, I'm not right. taking what? It's tough to make time. If you're bored... Yeah, here it is. So, if you're a board gamer, what's your dog-cat situation? It was 6,000 respondents, not 10,000. I was exaggerating. 27% have a dog. 23% have cats. 11, both. And 37% wow. have neither. So, a third of respondents do not have pets at all. Or maybe they have, you know, but don't have dogs or cats. Maybe they have fish or, or you know, exotic birds or whatever it might be. But a third of respondents, no dogs or cats. Almost a third of respondents uh, have dogs, 27%. 23% only have cats. So, that begs the question even more. It is in a uh, publisher... I mean, because I think 6,000 board game fan respondents is pretty solid data, quite frankly. I don't think there's anything implicit about my show that would bias towards dog... Or, or maybe there is. We are very avowed dog owners. Maybe there's a little bit of a bias. Maybe some people come here just because we love dogs. Probably not very many people, though. Yeah. So, why is that? Why are there more cat-themed games than dog-themed games? I mean, it's, it's got to say something either about the industry, about players, or about some kind of ineffable quality that has to do with these animals. Do you have any thoughts? Maybe dogs are more active, and so you can't have a cat sitting around in a garden. You wouldn't have a dog just sitting around in the garden. Hmm. Okay. So, dogs... Well, it's interesting. You know, cats have more of a sense of independence. Uh, you know, dogs have a lot more dependence on their owners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know. there's always all the... So you sidekicky kind of games, where your dog could be helping you. Right. Somehow. Which, again, does not lend the game to being about the dogs. Mm -hmm. Is there something about people's relationship with their cat that is fundamentally different and more game-friendly? Because the cat is more of an independent entity. Yeah. The uh, cats are much closer to wild animals than dogs are. Dogs are much more domesticated than cats, as a general rule. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe dogs, uh, you know, psycho on some psychological level, are more of a reflection and an extension of us, mm -hmm. and so they don't lend themselves to being the star of the show. Whereas cats are, uh, cats think of themselves as our owners <laughs> yeah. instead of vice versa. Yeah. And so there's just something inevitable about their uh, 
their behavior and their... Yeah, and even you think about dog, the movies about dogs and cats and stuff. Cats are always pictured on their own, being the, you know, the sovereign of the apartment. Yes, 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 yes. And dogs have got their group of dogs the, around them. Yeah, and the dogs are always the buddy. They're always the sidekick. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's what it is. It is something to do. I, I, that's the best I can come up I with. I can't think of a single individual dog show except maybe Lassie. Sure. Well, I mean, no, there's there's a, there's a few, but you're uh, well. I mean, but what what cat shows can you think of? Well, I'm just saying, as as a entertainment uh -huh. um, provider. Yeah, yeah. Dogs are always with either their owners or with other dogs doing doggy things. Yeah. 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 Oh, I I'm I, I. That's my best answer. Whereas Lassie was out saving people and doing independent thinking. Yep. And thank you for the snow beagle, <laughs> Nat Mac. That is awesome. What was the Beagle's name? Oh, Pongo. Pongo. Good name, too. All right, let's move on to Stefan, who included oh. uh, Lemmy, named after the late singer of Motorhead, an adorable little kitten. Oh, he's pretty cute. All right, uh, as a cutie patootie. But uh, Stefan already had some other questions in the gaming stuff, so now a one for Jen. And he, Stefan actually says that he wanted to ask both Jen and I this. Uh, Stefan's favorite gaming partner is his girlfriend. They enjoy all kinds of board games, and she sometimes even watches my run-throughs. Wow, well, then you, you, you know you found the right girl, Stefan. That's excellent. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, several times in my videos, I've mentioned my ultimate goal is for Jen not to burn out because of all the games we play. Uh, this is a thing that Stefan also uh, asks himself. He's aware of his own growing mania for board games and wouldn't want his girlfriend to feel pressured with that in a way that could cause her to want to stop playing. How do we handle the situation? Yes, I would say this is 100% uh, Jen's mm. question. Um, well, we've made it such that um, you you are, A, first of all, extremely picky about what games we play. Yes. So I think that helps a lot. Um, I didn't used to be. Yeah, I mean, I used to have to sort of sit and wait while he confirmed rules and read things again and all of that. And it just... Yeah, tried my patience. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do appreciate how extremely picky you are. That helps a lot. Well, no, you just talked about two different things. There's the fact that I'm picky and try very, very hard to just skip any game that I don't think she will enjoy. I don't experiment, quite frankly. I'm happy to experiment. I'm happy to try something that I may or may not like. But I don't think Jen has any patience for that at all. Well, I mean, we we play enough games that are good mm -hmm. that I don't really feel like I've got. The Should I take a chance more often and say, "Well, I don't know if Jen's going to like this one or not." What the heck? Let's give it a try. Well, because I, I try. I do. Huh? We've had some games. That yes, we've... but usually I'm relatively confident. It's very very rare that I bring one. I'm like, "Honey, I don't know if you're going to like this. I have no idea how you're going to respond to this. Let's give it a try." I that never happens. I sometimes make bad choices, um, or sometimes she doesn't like a thing I thought for some unexpected reason, but um, I, I never experiment. I never bring something to the table that I'm not moderately confident that you would enjoy on some level. Is that, am I wasting my time? Should I should, should I take more chances? Well, wait a minute. What about that um, rock band game that we both enjoyed? And I I was confident you were going to like that game because I read the rules and I knew the gameplay was really, really good. And that you would enjoy it in spite of the heavy metal thematic okay. content. I, 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 I went into that knowing full well that the gameplay... Uh, and she's talking about 
Thrash and Roll, which is an excellent dice worker placement game, does not get near enough attention. And you did. You loved it. Yeah. And in spite of the subject matter. And I knew that. So that was not an example of me trying something experimental. Okay, well, so for me, that was experimental. Well, yes. <laughs> no, for me, trying something experimental would be, yeah, this seems like it's a really quirky system. I don't know if it's going to work or not. Uh, you know, this often happens. There will be plenty of rule books I read that publishers want me to cover a game, and I, and I, I, I can't get in my head how this game feels. I, I, I genuinely don't know. This is really weird. Maybe, and it seems like it could work, but it could be a total disaster. It could just be a piece of garbage. And I will generally just say no to those. Um, and, you know, and I feel kind of bad about it because I'm probably missing out on some really cool things. And I'll say no 100% because of her. Because I don't want to take a chance on it being something that would turn her off. Should I do that? I'm assuming that's the correct well, answer. What's the percentage of things that you think are probably good, but they're... Oh, there's what? probably at least two games a month like that. That I just pass on for no good reason other than I I I don't have a bad feeling necessarily, but I I'm I'm insecure. Well, all I can say is we we should try it and see. Are you, so you're saying I should? I mean, because that's what led to you the first time you said maybe we should take a break from playing games, oh. and then that's when I stopped doing that. Oh, I instantly stopped doing that the instant you said that, because you said, well, it feels like uh, recently there's been a we we played a bunch of games. I don't know. Maybe we should just take a break. And I was like, well, that kind of destroys the channel. Um, yeah. So let's not do that. Okay, well, all I can say is if you... Yeah, I, I was going to say, if you can think that I'd enjoy it, then that's fine. But you don't know. Right, that's why I'm not, that's so I don't take any chances to answer Stefan's question. That's how I handle it. If I find something that I think maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, I just don't... I literally don't risk it. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I still occasionally come across stuff that it turns out, well, that wasn't, that was a bad call. It still happens with me and my best efforts, but that's a big thing I do. And it sounded like for a second, she said, no, you shouldn't do that. But well, I'm just thinking about, are you, are you, you're saying you want to experiment and maybe play games you don't like on a regular basis because that's what you just said. And that's what will happen. No. So you would like me to continue to say no on anything that I'm just guessing and thinking, yeah, I don't know. And since I don't have a good feeling, let's just pass. Or these days, push it over to Shay. Oh, well, so it's somebody's still reviewing it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Shay, might, Shay says no. Shay says no more and more. Uh, he's uh, uh, he, he's getting really good about you know being very picky as well. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That has nothing to do with anything, Honey Pie, because it's still more than anything else. I'll stop Rado runs through in a heartbeat just to ensure we can still enjoy playing games together. So the question to you is, how do you feel this problem should be handled? Because Stefan is looking for advice because he doesn't want his girlfriend to burn out. And you're someone who almost burned out at one point. Yeah. So what do you what should Stefan do to avoid you using you as a proxy? Yeah. I guess, yeah, I would say if she's like me, she's got seven thousand other things going through her head. Mm -hmm. And so if you want her to have fun with you, make sure she it's a good game. Mm -hmm. Make sure that she's going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Make sure it's a lighter game? No, not necessarily, because I like heavy games, too. Yeah, but, but sometimes you're just not up for it. That's because you've got 7,000 things going through your head. Yeah, and that's fine. You've talked about this in the past. What can a gaming partner do to help their partner give themselves permission to enjoy a game? I thought you were going to kind of go into that speech. Oh, I didn't know. I feel like I've hammered on that nail a lot. Uh, half the people who are listening to this right now have never heard, probably well over half. I mean, because okay. you did that years ago. All right. Well, I'm a woman and I have 7,000 things running through my head at all times. So including things that you can help me with, like mm -hmm. making sure the dishes are done mm -hmm. um, or 
knowing that the dog has been out for a potty break or, um, I don't know, pick up some slack so that she doesn't have to do so much and, you know, sort of be a equal partner in the relationship. Yep. Again, so she doesn't have to pick up so much of the slack. Right. That's See, that's the thing. That's, I, I, I was I was to. expecting Jen to talk about that and just kind of prompting her for it uh. because that has nothing to do with the game. That has nothing to do with you know the genre or the frequency that you're playing games. That has more to do with this underlying thing that Jen I thought brilliantly identified years ago. That um, you know it might be that your significant other would enjoy playing games and just isn't in a situation where they feel that they can because they have too much day to day pressures. And maybe it's more of a question of helping them with that so that they can relax and really enjoy a game and yeah. let themselves get into it. So that's why I was. And also, if you do that and you set aside, you know, Sunday mornings or Saturday nights or whatever as as the time that you're going to let everything else go and you're going to play a game and enjoy yourselves. <sighs> Kind of like a date night, um, I, and you set the scene that way, and you make it a special event, and you make, you know not a special event, but a, a, a normal time that you guys spend together where you don't let the outside pressures of the world in. I think that would be really nice too. Is mm. setting up a special time like that. Okay, right, and then of course also pay attention to the games. Um, you know, try pick wise, choose wisely. Yeah. Alrighty, and then we had Lemmy. Um, who is total motorhead. <laughs> Just so look cute. at that that headbanger there. Okay. I love the paws. Look at the little claws sticking out. Yep. And uh, that's it. We uh, we didn't have very many gaming questions for Jen this month. Uh, but as always, folks, if you uh, think that you would be interested in what Jen has to say about gaming, don't you know, don't leave her on the fence. You saw some people said, hey, this is a gaming question for Rotto and Jen. I still try to pull them out. But anyway, we are done with gaming stuff, folks, which means uh, you might be done with the podcast because we're now going to move on into more personal, non-gaming, non-Rotto runs-through-related topics. So this is where you get off. As always, thank you very much uh, for listening and or watching. And uh, as always, send those questions to questionsaround.com. Talk to you later so long. Bye-bye. <laughs> Otherwise, hang on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, welcome back. I promise you, Jen is still here. Proof of life, right there. That's all you're going to get is just a few fingertips waving around slowly and mysteriously. <laughs> you're not even going to show her beautiful tea mug. Look at this thing. Look at how rainbow colored Isn't it is. Isn't that pretty? She loves this and thing. This she recently got one. it. Yep, off of Etsy. Off of Etsy. Yep. Supporting those creators. Yay! Um, Look at, wait, before, can you show the rim? Just imagine drinking from this, and then you've got this beautiful, also rainbow colored rim. Okay. Can you see that? Kind of wiggle it a little bit so they see the colors change. Is that not gorgeous? Uh, I love the detail. Sorry for folks listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, as always, uh, this goes up on YouTube every month and there's video accompanying if you want. And it's very easy to forget once you turn on the video that most of you are still listening. Apologies for that. Suffice to say, it is a very pretty mug <laughs> with a lot of kind of rainbow shimmer to it. Yep. Like oil slicks. <clears throat> right. Okay, so we are getting into the non-gaming stuff. We are starting with Chris, who um, finds my playthroughs to be enjoyable and beneficial. However, uh, recently he's also found himself becoming distracted by uh, a YouTube channel called The Key of Geebs. As a rule, Chris is not into musical deconstruction-style videos, but cannot help but notice uh, you know, that Mr. George Del Barrio, the, the person who does this channel... 
uh, has a physical look, nature, and enthusiasm for a subject that makes Chris think uh, he's a Rado doppelganger. Oh my. What does Jen think? Do you have an eye for this type of thing? Am I late to the party, or have you already been told this? No, you are the first. I've been told many things. I've been told <laughs> I sound like um, Jeff Goldblum, probably more than anything else. I constantly get that. I don't understand it. I don't hear it at all. I've been told I look like many people. Probably the most common is I get a lot of Steve Carell's. Um, I've got, I get some, uh, uh, Keanu Reeves is also, which is a bit more, uh, a bit more, um, flattering. Uh, and that, yeah, Steve Carell's a, a, a handsome man as well. Uh, but anyway, Honey Pie, uh, we have to follow this link to a video called Why Does Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb Reaction Melt Your Face? So let me go on ahead and, uh, control that link. And then that means you should be over here, except it, there it goes. So, honey pie, does this give you, guy give you Rado vibes? He literally just opened with "Hey, everybody, how is it?" So, and then Aloha. And, um, I like that. I'm starting something new called "Why This Song Melts Your Face," and what it is is it's just my opinion as a composer on why songs that I choose, or maybe some that you send me in the comments, I listen to. That. So, what do you think of that guy? Um, this pause I've got right here. His gray beard and his gray hair pretty much exactly match mine. <laughs> that is uncanny. Um, I could use a bit more tan like he's got. That's certainly the case. Yeah, that is... That is weird, man, Chris. Um, that, that is very surprising. Um, I, I totally see where you're coming from. Do you, what do you think, Honey Pie? Yeah. Yep. Well, I think he's already engaging. I'm, I want to hear more. Uh, well, actually, I did when this, when this video when we first came in. I I, I, you know, I I scan all the emails when they come in just so I know what directory to put them in. And I did look at this and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll listen. And I, it was a really enjoyable video. I thought you were going to ask me what are my thoughts about um, music appreciation and deep dives. And I didn't realize you were just asking, does do I think the guy looks like me? <laughs> But it's a really good video. Uh, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, you know, Comfortably Numb is just such an amazing song. And uh, yeah, he, he has a really infectious enthusiasm. Really good stuff. In case people are interested in it, the key of Geebs. G-E-E-B-Z. Geebs. Um, righty. Um, so yes, I, I would say that was very Dopper Gangalish. That was almost weird. But anyway, moving on to Darren, who wonders, did we watch The Queen's Gambit? Did we like it? I have every intention of watching The Queen's Gambit. We, Jen and I did sit down one evening to watch it, and the first 10 minutes are so grim and so dark and so dour and so depressing that Jen said, yeah, I don't think I want to watch this. And so, yeah, it starts off in the weakest possible way for Jen. So we just completely tuned out, and I never got back around to trying it. Um, because I guess the show is as much about, you know, the addiction and stuff like that uh, as it is about chess. And uh, yeah, Jen was just not interested. So I'm planning on watching it someday, but haven't yet. Uh, all right. And then Darren says, something I've been meaning to ask for a while. I've mentioned that I watch YouTube at 5x speed. No, I do not. I watch it at usually at 2, sometimes 2.5. Usually. Sometimes 3, but that's pretty rare. Because, um, man, the world is too slow for me. Uh, do do I... Wait, did I already answer this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this question from um, all the previous month? It might... I think I might have kept this around because maybe I skipped... Oh, what the heck? I'll answer it again in case... Uh, I apologize. All right. Uh, do I do that with TV too? No, I don't. I Okay, I know I have answered this because... Uh, yeah, I don't... 
Actually, that's not true. I do watch John Oliver on HBO at double speed. I watch Samantha Bee. I watch news-related shows at double speed, usually. I don't watch drama shows or comedies or anything like that. But anything that's... I, I watch documentaries at 2x speed, uh, as a general rule. Right, and uh, anyway, we're going to continue. We're going to, even if this is a repeat, apologies, folks. Uh, sometimes I also screw up and don't delete emails from a previous month. Or I realize, oh, I didn't answer the whole question, and I leave it around, and then forget which parts I answered and which part <laughs> I didn't. Anyway, though, so Darren continues. Heard um, something like this in a comment. It was Flash or maybe Quicksilver. Uh, someone says, uh, why are you such a dick to people? You shut them down without even listening to what they say. Uh, people asked this speedster character, and their response was, they do listen, but because their brains work so fast, they've already thought about a hundred different ways and formed an opinion before the person stops talking. So it just appears to be arrogance, and not that they aren't open to new ideas. So the question is, am I like that? Do I find the world so slow, and I think of something before uh, the person has finished asking the question, or anything like that. I'll ask Jen, Honey Pie, do you find that to be the case in dealing with me? And Jen just closed her eyes. <laughs> so, folks, get comfortable. No, I don't want to answer that question. Uh, you answer it. No, I've got, I've, I've, go ahead. It's fine. I'm far from a perfect husband. Um, so, yes, what, what, what is it you have to say oh. on that topic? Okay, uh, yes. Okay, go on. You've already thought a bunch of stuff. And whatever I'm saying, you have a good response to. And oftentimes it could be just off the cuff. But for some reason, you have thought of something that, some answer, and you're going to make sure I understand your answer, even though I'm not yet done talking about <laughs> With the question. The question. <laughs> yep. How's that? And, and you find that annoying? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. I do stop you, though. You, we've been married long enough that you will... Shut the hell up mm -hmm. for a few minutes and let me finish my my thought before launching off into your ever so persuasive answer. <laughs> that is very long, eloquent, detailed with repetitive. bullet points, uh, repetitive, exactly. You know, drilling down on the same thing over and over again, and it sounds like it's something that I've been carrying around with me for twenty years and giving it a lot of thought. When in fact, I'm just saying the first thing that comes to my mind as often as not, and you find all of that very annoying. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's true. It's, it's, uh, it is something I have to struggle with, Darren. When I'm actually talking with people, to not just interrupt them halfway through whatever it is they're saying and say, okay, I get what you're saying, let me respond. Because I'm like, ah, I gotta be, you're talking so slow. <laughs> and yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. And, and, and to be fair, I don't always get it. And I should just cool my jets and listen, because maybe they're going in it, maybe they're going to zig, and I've already decided the 10 different ways they were going to zag, and I was going to answer every single one of them. That is definitely 100% a problem I have, and it is an annoyance, and it is certainly annoying for Jen. It's probably annoying for anybody who deals with me for any length of time. I have to really struggle not to cut people off and just start answering their question when I think. And, and, and if you're a slow talker, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that is torture for me. And it's not that I don't like the person. It's not that I'm not genuinely interested in having a back and forth, but it's... Oh, jeez. Checking my watch <laughs> that I don't actually have. Um, and it, it's something I struggle with, and I know it's not their fault. It's my fault, and it's something I have to work on. And Jen's made that very, very clear in the past. I mean, I've really caused her to blow up in anger sometimes because I just keep doing it without even thinking about it. Yep. And sometimes she just lets it go. Yeah. I mean, we've been married 30 years. Yes. All right. So, good observation. I don't remember answering that. I feel like I talked about... I don't know. Anyway, though. So, uh, like I said, folks, this is the personal stuff. Things get personal up in here. And let's see what Michelle has to say. 
Well, Michelle has done a fair bit of thinking uh, for seven hours wow. after checking out the previous podcast because um, there was an email from Ike who brought up the question about uh, problematic tropes of mistreating workers in economic games. And, um, you know, Ike's question really made Michelle think back to when uh, she, I'm assuming she, was a teenager playing video games, was constantly being told by the news, by their parents uh, and teachers, that sometimes violent acts that Michelle was acting out in video games was going to make uh, them a violent person. Of course, that wasn't true. Many studies have shown there's no correlation between violent video games and real-life violence. If anything, there's a correlation between violent games and the decline in violent crimes. So anyway, Michelle never really thought about it. Uh, but the fantasies that I'd play out in like Sid Meier's Civilization games can be very horrendous. Committing war crimes uh, against their friends, taking over cities, turning them into basically slave states. Uh, these acts are very abstracted in the design of these video games, but that is what Michelle was doing. And of course, never would do any of those things in real life. Uh, you know, Michelle identifies as a socialist and pacifist. So... Uh, as someone, me, who has created video games, do I think there's a difference between the horrible fantasies video games let one live out uh, and the problematic tropes that Ike was talking about in board games? Michelle doesn't see any issues with it, um, can only think of one board game that uh, lets them screw over workers for efficiency, that being anachrony, because you can, you, 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 you can really mistreat your workers in that game. Uh, but even then, there's a downside to doing that. So, uh, why... Why, why isn't this in the game section? I do not know why this isn't in the game section, but sometimes I screw up, folks, <laughs> and uh, this ended up in the personal section, even though this is very clearly a game-related question. Um, you know, I've, I've been asked uh, about you know violence in video games and does it warp children's minds and all of that, and I, I do tend to stand with the studies that have pretty pr conclusively proven that there's no direct link between playing violent video games and an increase in violent acts of aggression. What I think has not been studied enough, because I do always have kind of a, pro a worry in the back of my head is, is there a link between continued exposure to violent video games and your attitude towards violence uh, that you would see in the news or that you would be exposed to in regular life? Are you more accepting of, oh, you know what, the world's a violent place? Or do you find yourself less taken aback by violence because of repeated exposure to it and committing said acts? And I do kind of wonder, borderline worry, that um, violent video games can have a psychological impact on that. That somebody who really should look at the state of the world and say, oh my god, that's so terrible, that violence is out of control and should be stopped maybe doesn't have the same guttural, instinctual aversion because of repeated exposure. As far as I know, I've never seen any studies on that. Uh, everybody just always just only studies the direct link to direct violence, as opposed to attitudes about violence. And so I mention that because, could, um, you know, does Sid Meier's civilization... Obviously, it doesn't make anybody more inclined to go out and colonize foreign lands and exploit um, your local labor. Not that anybody has the opportunity to do that just because they played the game. Does it make people more comfortable with it? Does it make people more inclined to say, 
Yeah, but you know what? I, I played that. That was in ancient history. It's not really a problem. Why is everybody so worried about that? It's a very common pushback when you see folks uh, mentioning that, like, like Ike's email, or it's a very, very common thing to say, why do we have so many games about colonialization? Why is it such a common theme? And why is it treated so blithely, even though it's you know, the source of so much literal evil? Um, you know, I mean, in terms of how people get treat uh, treat other people and dehumanize other people. Why are there so many people who are ready to step up and say, "Yeah, but who cares? It's just a game." Is did repeated exposure to that make it feel less impactful and more easy to compartmentalize by continually playing games that abstract these things? I don't know. I have no personal data to back that up. But in the back of my mind, I wonder, in the same way about violent video games, does repeated exposure and minimalization of these elements and you know, normalization of these elements have a long-term impact on how people respond to these things? And, um, and, you know, and if, if it's true for video games, uh, could it be true for board games as well? I suspect there might be something to that. I don't know. I, um, you know, and I'm not saying anybody is a bad person for enjoying playing Puerto Rico. I mean, that's a, it's a great design game. I'm not saying anybody's a bad person for designing it. I am suggesting it is something that um, players and developers, it doesn't hurt to take stock and maybe evaluate these things and evaluate how we feel about them. And, um, you know, and maybe take the time to appreciate that these games are doing a lot of work to abstract away a lot of horrors. And does that have an impact on how we view the world? Are we more predisposed to dismiss certain points of views as a result of our continual, lifelong um, consumption of that content? Again, I don't know. I don't know if you have anything to say on that subject, Honey Pie. I do. Oh my I... goodness, here we go. I did not think she would. I, have, I think, actually, there is a desensitization towards mm -hmm. violence mm -hmm. and unbelievable things mm -hmm. that has happened mm -hmm. due to the reality of um, what's available to us now. So an example that I can easily point to okay. is on 9-11. Yes. I remember exactly what we were doing. We were living in Austin at the time, mm -hmm. and we walked out and saw on the TV, I think you must have already been watching, I walked out of the bedroom into our living room and saw the plane yeah. burning in the, um, I think mm -hmm. it was the first tower. And I had this sense of, is this actually happening? Or is this something Hollywood's, you know, mm. is this some sort of a, a gag thing for the next, you know, horror uh, movie that comes up for um, terrorism movie or whatever? Anyway, yeah, yeah. You know, I just couldn't quite believe it. And, and it took you know, several minutes for me to believe that this actually was happening in New York City. Mm. And so I think, and, and we've watched so many of these, you know, aliens come over and take over the earth and Tom Cruise saves us or, you know, those, there's a lot of those kinds of disaster movies that we've all seen now. And so we sort of have, I think, a reduced capacity for shock and horror and, yeah. um, being able to feel the empathy of what that would actually be like. And all I can point to it, it for a real life example, because you know I've led a very good, safe life, mm -hmm. is my experience on 9/11. Right. So it does seem to me that we are desensitizing, 
And yeah. the more that we desensitize towards colonialism and, and that sort of thing, and I know it's it's being woke now and it's being politically correct and all of that, but nonetheless, we do have to face what has happened and face it, I think, straight on. And that's the only way that... And the impact it has for people. It's still, yeah. I mean, just because you don't feel it in your life doesn't mean other people do. And it doesn't mean you can't be more sensitive to that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I would like to say. All right. Well, that's... that's a, well. I'm now glad I didn't leave this in the game section. This uh, definitely went far beyond games. Um, but anyway, yeah, thank you, Michelle. I, I, and uh, I don't know if we answered your question, but I, I think that's kind of where Jen and I are. And I'm glad to hear where Jen was. Okay. Jonathan. Let's uh, see if you're a little bit uh, lighter in subject matter. <laughs> Jonathan knows that we're both big fans of universal basic income. And he thought we might be interested to know that Wales it will now be trialing yes. UBI. Apparently, I, Jen knew. I, I did not. That. Yep. Uh, currently, welfare isn't one of the areas um, uh, devolved? devolved in Welsh government, but it looks like it, it's making a uh, marking a shift towards further devolution in Wales. We already have health, education, uh, economic development, transportation, environment, and agricultural all devolved. When he says devolved, I assume he must be talking about some very specific legal term. Yeah, I don't that know. I, I'm assuming means, oh, the government has made a stance to fund this less. It is being devolved. Oh. I mean, the way he po says devolved very casually, which is a word that people don't use normally, mm -hmm. certainly talk about these things, he must be... All right. Sorry, Jonathan, we're not quite sure what you mean, but we'll continue. Uh, Jonathan knows that a return to the UK is one possibility that we have discussed in the future. Uh, it's not even a possibility. It is a certainty. Make no mistake. Uh, at least, unless something radically changes about Jen's brain chemistry. Um, <laughs> okay, hold on. Devolved is having had power transferred or delegated to a lower level. Okay. Especially from a central government to a local or regional. Oh, I see. Okay. So, to use an American analogy, it's less of a federal government thing and more of a local state level thing. And that the Welsh or... government is doing that. Okay. Um, all right. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. So, anyway. Uh, Jonathan continues, and thanks for uh, edumacating us, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> We've learned a lot. Uh, you know the return to the UK is one possibility, so I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on the devolution in Scotland or Wales. Well, it's a good thing you looked that up, because we had no idea what you meant, sir. Or even if it had entered your knowledge. Well, I think we've answered that quite clearly. <laughs> it has clearly not entered our knowledge. We didn't even never... And we lived in the UK for 10 years. Uh, it never really popped up uh, in our day-to-day -day conversation. Um... So, do we have any thoughts about that? I, I, I can't speak to Scotland or Wales, uh, but I will speak to the uh, the American system. Has it's it's baked into our constitution. It's baked into the birth of our country that there was a fundamental schism and tension between the idea of centralized authority and distributed authority, the rights of the states versus the federal government to dictate how everybody can have a better life. Personally, I'm a huge federalist. I am all about top-down, um, you know, apply rules to everybody. And I understand there are problems with that because individual communities, um, you know, might have very different societal norms, cultural needs, uh, you know, economic situations that means a federal top-down, one-size-fits-all one just fundamentally doesn't work. And I appreciate that, and there's going to be exceptions to every case, but I always start from... Every time I hear... In America, 
I think a lot of problems we have is because of our let states be the laboratory of democracy approach because a lot of our states do a lot of really bad things. And you don't have to look much further than Texas trying to completely eliminate any constraints on gun ownership. For anybody living in Texas, that is what the Texas state legislature, I don't, I don't know if they've passed it yet or if it's still being fought, that any Texan can own a gun without a license, without proving anything. Or no, that's not true. Felons aren't allowed to. I believe that's the only exception. Um, and that drives me crazy bonkers bananas. That is so out of touch with reality. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of what... You know, I mean, Amer Americans have been... Um, Focus grouped on this for decades, and universally, without fail, the overwhelming majority of Americans, both left and right-leaning, support moderate, sensible gun control. And Texas is saying, yeah, we don't care. We, um, you know, we, we have a legislature that's going to throw all that away and literally return us to the wild, wild west where anybody can go to any store at any time and buy a gun. And carry it. And just carry it, you know, and... and that's disgusting to me. That And that is an example of, well, yeah, but we have a different culture in Texas. Don't mess with Texas. That's literally their unofficial state motto. And yeah, I think it's better, as a general rule, to try to cast a broad umbrella that um, you know, covers the needs. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And I know Star Trek then turned right around and threw all that on its face by sacrificing everything for Spock, and that was the fundamental, you know, thematic uh, notion of Wrath of Khan. But I'm still needs of the many outweigh the needs of fewer the ones. So yeah, um, that's disappointing to hear. If uh, Scotland and Wales are kind of taking a more oh well, let's just let local jurisdictions resolve these things, and then you just have a weird hodgepodge country where oh in this county. It's perfectly, or in this state, you can buy a gun at a 7-Eleven without even having to show ID. And, and oh, you know what? I can then just drive across state lines and kill a bunch of people with it. You know, that's, that's unacceptable. I am, all, I am all about, and have been my entire life, all about big, big government. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because then we continue with more Jonathan stuff. Uh, no. No? Okay. Do you disagree? Or, or have you just not thought about it? Which is fine. I mean, you've got 7,000 other things to th think about, as we previously discussed. Yeah, no, I, I generally do agree mm -hmm. with your thought about having a standard for everybody. Yeah. And then if there's little things that need to be adjusted yes. in the states, then, or even the city level, or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Or county, or what have yeah, you. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But yeah, I think we, should, we need a base. Yeah, we need to start from the everybody. top. Everybody. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, back in the 90s, the differences between the federal prison system versus local prison systems is galling. Um, you know, and it leads to a lot of misunderstandings. It just creates every confusion all over the place. It's just, you know, in every way, I, I find local approach to be inferior as a general. Not always, but almost always. You're better off starting from the top and then working down uh, in terms of governance and, you know, trying to do right by the people. That's, yeah. Okay. But then, Jonathan continues to a slightly uh, less weighty topic. <laughs> Would we consider Wales as a potential settling spot? I know you really liked Cornwall, and much of the Welsh landscape <laughs> is uh, quite similar. Ooh. Pembrokeshire, the Gower, um, and with a lower cost of living. And here's a photo Jonathan took from just down the road from his house. So let's go on ahead and look at, I am sure, the gorgeousness. Alrighty, and we've still got um, Kiev. All right, so here it comes. 
That could be right down the road, honey pie. I'm sure that's Jonathan's boots right there. And just imagine that. And at half the cost of our cost of living in Guilford, yep. which is where we lived when we were in the UK. All right, getting back over to... Alrighty. So would the fact that you would be living in an area that has universal basic income have any... I mean, Jonathan's wow. really pushing for a move to Wales. So, well, but is that only for Welsh people? I mean... Yeah, I mean, we, we are would. Welsh? We I don't are, know. I, we are British. Yeah, we are British, but we are not Welsh. And I don't know. Are there are there any uh, moves to break away from the UK, like the, Scotland? Um, and well, I don't think I've heard about that in Wales. Anyway, though, to answer your question, no, we very seriously considered uh, moving to Wales yeah. before we moved to Malta. Um, you know, this was whatever it was, almost a decade ago now, I guess, well, we not were, quite. We were in Malta for six years and we'd been here for three, so about 10 years ago. Yeah, so about a decade ago. Yeah, when... actually, when my parents came over, we did. We uh, went down um, South Wales and up the coast and we stayed near Snowdonia. Um, yes. Up there, that was beautiful as oh, well. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought South Wales was beautiful as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely be open to looking around. Oh, and then Kate Humble has a, has a show right now where she's it's her farm. Yeah. That we've been watching. And Escape to the Farm, I believe, is the name of the show. Well, he'll that know. That we watch. He'll know. Kate sure, sure. Is. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so she's, and she's somewhere in Wales, kind of central, I think, on the... On the east side of the mountains, mm -hmm. but anyway, um, and and it's beautiful. I every time we, I just oh, I just <laughs> yeah. melt into happiness and everything when I. See and she her. just forgets all seven thousand of her concerns yeah. and just is transported away to lambing and all the problems that Kate has on the farm. Yep. Anyway, yeah. So yes, we would. We seriously, um, you know, when, when I when I quit the video game industry. And we had to figure out, oh, well, I'm in my mid-40s, and uh, if I'm going to retire, how does this work? And there was a lot of discussion about, well, maybe we should just move to Wales. Because as you said, the cost of living just is so much more reasonable. And the same, we talked about Ireland also. Um, you know, uh, not Northern Ireland, but Ireland proper. And, I mean, we di didn't really get very far in that, but it could have very well happened. But then this whole thing with Malta came up, we are like, well, we have to do this. This is amazing. <laughs> how yeah. can we not do this? Yep. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a possibility. I think the only thing that ever gave you pause was the the rain, right? That and also I want to travel a lot. I really want to do European traveling. Mm -hmm. So um, there are there are ferries that come that go out of Southern Wales to mainland Europe. Although with Brexit, who knows if that matters anyway? Uh, yeah, um, but so I think part of it was that I I like being right next to Gatwick and Heathrow. Oh sure sure you know, sure. Twenty five minutes away from either airport, and you can just go. Yeah yeah yeah. So, so what? that's Wales is a lot further away than that. But eh. Yeah. If we're retired, who cares? Yeah. It, so it, it is definitely still a possibility, and you've made it an even stronger possible. Although you've sent mixed messages, Jonathan, um, with the whole devolution plus the UBI plus the cost of link plus that picture. I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> um, anyway, though. Okay. Uh, yeah, but Wales is awesome. Although we are not going to learn Welsh. Just saying that right now. Yeah. Sorry. And I don't know, maybe if that's like a we deal already, breaker for Wales. We make fun already of um, British things like not having an, the pronunciation of all of the letters. And Welsh is times Welsh 100. is something else. Yep. Um, I'm sure it's a beautiful language, but it, we, you know, it, our brain just can't get around it. <laughs> okay. too old for that. Mac says, uh, can you talk uh, more about your dogs? Uh, do you still have beagles? What are their names? I'd love for them to make another video appearance. Uh, yeah, this is actually, I took this out. Mac had some other game stuff and I, and he had oh. this, so I just pulled this out and brought it into the oh. personal stuff. Okay. Um, I'd love for them to make video, uh, another video appearance in your channel or at least a cameo. And of course he's referring to when we were in Malta, people saw Dobby and Tula in the background all the time, just snoozing on the couch. That doesn't happen now very much. You do see them. That's because you do not allow them in the <laughs> Yes, here's the thing. 
I'm filming on a black surface. <laughs> Those dogs have white fur and it is shedding constantly. So they are literally banned from this room. Sometimes they'll sneak in for a minute. Yep. Um, yeah, so I'm like, get, 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 get be gone. And they get all hungry. No, oh, we want to stay here with you. This is clearly the best room in the house because we're not allowed to be here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's just, a, it's such a pain to clean up. I mean, you know, if they're in a room long enough, it, it, it's forget about what's right there. I mean, it'll just, I, I mean, the, the room becomes subsumed with white fur, like every other room in this house. Yeah. So this is the one well, fur-free. You run free... the vacuum and you have to empty the container yeah. seven times while you're vacuuming because there's so much fur. So that is why you have not seen much of Daisy, who is a half beagle, half PBGB. Yeah, we think petite griffin. What is it? PBGB, so Petite Bassett Griffon Vendine. Right, so she's half and half. We got her in Sicily. Um, so she's an Italian-speaking dog. Or that's how that's her barking accent. She's a wonderful little pooch. And then we have Gertrude, who is a cousin of, of uh, Tallulah, a, uh, a blonde beagle, pure beagle. I mean, very regal beagle, quite frankly, although she's a goofball too. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they, they've popped up here and there. Um, uh, what, how could you find them? What would be the best way to find them? There is a video on our channel when we first got Daisy, and we'd at that point we'd had Gertrude for a few months, and we got Daisy, and the first night they met, and they just instantly just became, you know, fell in love with each other and were playing with each other. If you want to see them, oh yeah, with jumping on the couch and Dobby's just kind of. Oof. You know what I'm gonna do, Mac? If I haven't already done it, although Jen's answering a phone call. I just Jen just said they can leave a message, whoever they were. Um, I am going to, by the time you see or hear this, Mac, you'll be able to go to beagle.rado.com and every video that's on my channel that is fo that is focused on them. Not where they're just making guest appearances, but you know those ones I mentioned earlier, the snow beagles, plus the ones where they're playing. That will be a link to videos so you can see our pups uh, front and oh, center. we just... We... And Jen said, oh, what, what? Oh. You saw that she's still here, yes. Um, I'm not throwing my voice. Um, well, we just went away for our 30th anniversary onto the Oregon coast. Yes. And you got that awesome video of them climbing up the rock and everything, right? <sighs> Remember, I screwed up, though, and I, I, I missed most of it. Well, maybe... I'll look, could, I'll look. I, we never looked at that video to see By what the time else. you hear this, Mac, go to beagle.rado.com. There'll be something. I don't know what. I can promise nothing. But because I haven't done it yet, but I'll I'll work on that after I'm done recording. Okay, Jeff, Jeff, uh, who says one best things you enjoy about living in Pacific Northwest? Jeff's actually responding. This was a question that came in a couple of times over the last couple of months. First time we kind of blew it off. Second time we said forests, I think, or greenery. The you know the green lushness. Oh yeah. Or no no no, that's not true. Yeah, somebody asked, and we said ice cream. Or no, we said consumer. And then somebody I think asked. In a in a Q and A, I did, and then I think I answered because you never got asked again, right? I don't think so. Um, what, uh, 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 and I, I said I really like the the forest, the, you know, the dense, the greenery. That's a big deal too. Anyway, Jeff wanted to point out because people were asking Jeff and uh, and and uh, Kathy. Um, they're retiring here. Kathy is from here. They've lived in Bellingham for 10 years. And for them, it's cool summers and mild winters, seafood and scenery. So Jeff just wanted a proper answer on this podcast. If we were never going to give one other than, oh, um, we, I don't remember what we said. Honey pie, give a thoughtful answer. What do you like the most about the Pacific Northwest? Actually, I'm trying to remember. Is this the Jeff and Kathy that took me to dinner at SeaTac? Oh my gosh. It, 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 I don't know. I mean, that was years game? ago. I know. That was like. 
probably a dozen years ago. I mean, you know it was Jeff, but was it a Kathy as well? I think well? it was Jeff and Kathy. Oh, well, I mean, he didn't mention that, but anyway. Um, well, Jeff, write back and, and remind me, or maybe I've lost my or, 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 or take the credit for another Jeff while you're at it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you say, yes, of course that was me. Yeah. Um, actually, she gave me a, a really nice pencil case that I use when I go around to lamp working classes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that you still use to this day. I still use to this day. Well, well, if in fact this is Jeff and that Jeff and Kathy, thank you again. Yes. Um, okay. So what was the question? So I mean, he's not making a question. He's just following up because we didn't really answer. What was our favorite thing about living in the Pacific Northwest? He's saying, well, my favorite thing: cool summers, mild winters, seafood, and scenery. So, with a more thoughtful and considered answer that wasn't just off the top of our head. I mean, what do you like about living in the Pacific? Because it's not just now. We've been here for three years now. But you know, Jen and I. We went to college in the University of Washington, Seattle. It's where we met and fell in love. We lived in Seattle. Uh, we bought our first and our second house there. Oh, no, no, second house. No, we rented our first house, the Blue House. Then we bought the house in Burien. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we've had many jobs there. We, yeah, you know, we, we, we spent most of our 20s. Yeah, we lived in Bend. I still, I would consider Bend Northwest still. Uh, it's high desert. It doesn't feel Northwesty to me. I mean, you're right. I guess you could argue it is, yeah. but it doesn't feel Northwest. Right. Okay, well, so we were just talking about this side of the mountain. Yes. Side. Well, okay, for, so the main thing when we moved back here that I have really loved is seeing the volcanoes again. Ah. Yep, and my, I'm sure that's credit to my mom because she's always like, look, look, a volcano! <laughs> um, and, you know, we always just, that's something from my childhood. It's, it's always been something that she has um, yeah. thought was beautiful, and I agree. And so. that was certainly something we did not have. Uh, England is very flat, well, and have, Malta is very flat. They have, their mountains are like 3,000. Yeah, yeah. In, mm -hmm. in England. But, yeah. um, in and they're Malta, few and far between. Yeah, Malta's like 500 feet above sea level. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, and it's been completely raised to the ground everywhere, pretty much. <laughs> um, so moving back here and seeing, uh, you know, the forest, obviously, leading up to the snow-capped mountains has been fantastic. I have, I enjoy that every single time. And I we see, see it a lot because, um, you know, we live not too far from I-5. And so we drive north and south on I-5 yep. a lot. You can and see Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams, Mount Hood. Yep. Yeah, and every time, um, she's always uh, ooing and aahing over it. So that's your favorite consistent thing. That's, that's good. Yeah. All right. Okay. How about you? Um, I answered it in a recent Q&A, but it, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Central and Northern California for most of my very early years, and then my family moved up to Seattle when I was maybe, I don't know, 11 12, something like that for a while. And then we moved back down. And I remember at the time just uh, being so struck by, you know, the evergreen forests and, um, you, know, the, you know, the deep moss and the cool and the quiet. And at the t as a kid, I was really a big fan of the Berenstein Bears. And I felt like, oh, I'm living near where the forest, where the Berenstein Bears live. And that was just a, a weird little thing. And, um, and yeah, I think that's what I've always appreciated about Pacific Northwest. I mean, I just love nothing more than, you know, a drive through a, a, a windy, dark forest with, you know, just trees everywhere. I, I, and so it's kind of a similar thing to Jen. Um, I could care less about seafood. Uh, I love the seafood. I uh, I actually prefer heat. That's probably one of the things I really miss about Malta. Jen is not a heat maven like me, though. So, yeah, just mild weather across the board is is nice. Um but yeah, I, I think I think that's 
A follow-up on what we find Pacific Northwest. I think Jeff still has the best answer. Very clear. Cool summers, mild winters, seafood, and scenery. A scenery again, yeah. Scenery. C scenery, 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 scenery. Yep. All righty, next up, number two. For most of Jeff's life, trying to stay healthy and fit's been a regular routine. Swimming, cycling, resistance training. Jeff's always had a decent nutritional approach. Gaming, while enjoyable, is rather sedentary and contribute to weight gain and other issues. Oh, that's why I'm fat. There That's you go. <laughs> it's the gaming. Okay. It's all the gaming. All right. uh, do you talk about it from time to time? You, we, we talk about this from time to time, but how important is staying healthy and fit to us? Oh, it's very important. And although you wouldn't know it from <laughs> from our behavior. We're yeah. weak. We are. We're, we're weak. Well, I, I, I wish we were stronger. We, we, we've had periods of strength, and it inevitably we just... We're, we're, we are... I, I don't know. I, I'm very sedentary. I'm an incredibly sedentary person. I have been my entire life. Even as a kid, I was. Yeah, you'd like to get in your bunk and read. I got Yeah, when I grew up on a boat. Um, my parents still will, uh, you know, always told the story about how, you know, when I was born or, you know, my first few years of life, I, I was the first kid in the family. Um, and uh, everybody, you know, uncles, aunts, grandparents, parents, you know, they all kind of ooh and awed over me because I, you know, I was the first kid of, of, first of my generation in, in our extended family. And what I very quickly learned is, oh, I don't have to walk. I can just point and somebody will come along and pick me up and carry me there and put me wherever I want to go. <laughs> and I did this all the time as a baby. I, and they all knew that I was pointing. I was like, would somebody please uh, transfer me to this location? <laughs> so I don't have, and I learned to walk very late. My brother, on the other hand, he learned very early. He was literally climbing refrigerators as a toddler, and everybody was afraid he was going to fall and break his head and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, from a from right from the go, I have been a lazy sob, and I have been my entire life. And I know that's wrong, and I should do better. Uh, but and I I don't know what how Jen feels about that. I, I I mean, you you were a cheerleader in high school. You were athletic and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. I feel like I have been, um, I'm a lot more active than you anyway, yeah. right, throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So, um, just need to get more, I guess. Yep. Yeah. These days, our main, um, avenue is we really fell in love with a program that's available on virtual reality called Supernatural. So much so that we basically pay for a yearly subscription of it, in part to kind of shame us into using the thing. And uh, it's it's basically a calisthenics virtual reality program that is excellent. You have trainers who you know give you encouragement and remind you proper form, and 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 you and it's it's a fun game to play too. Uh, um, I'm set in gorgeous scenic areas. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it transports you all around the world to just incredible scenery, and you just have these great workouts, you know, calisthenic style stuff. And uh, we should be—I I should be doing that three times a week. I'm doing good to do it once a week, quite well, frankly. Yeah, but we were doing really good for a while. Yeah, and we've kind of fallen off there. And we do have every intention of getting good. I mean, uh, we just had to resubscribe for another year, so we, we're throwing money away if we don't use the thing. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. I think you can use it for a week for free if you want to try it out. If you have virtual reality, Supernatural VR is its full title. So that's kind of what we're doing. For a while, we were actually doing really good jogging, and then we just stopped. Oh, we stopped because it started raining, and it got muddy, and Jen didn't want to jog in the rain. So we quit, and then we never started again. Um, and then we weren't really doing anything. But the Surfer Natural VR is at least something. If, and, you know, gamifying it seems to help a little bit. Alrighty. Uh, number three. Last year, uh, um, Jeff had to say goodbye to their adopted family dog, uh, one they acquired when Kathy lost their daughter to cancer. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, puppy, aka Sonia, lived to nearly seventeen. Well, that's that, that is lucky. I mean, 
That, that is great to get that much time. Soon after, amid all the COVID-19 shutdowns, we decided to rescue two pups, Ooh. both pit mixes. Excellent. And they, uh, both had been returned at least once. One was heartworm positive. They turned out to be the sweetest dogs we've known. And we've attached the pictures. Betsy is white with one eyebrow. And uh, Kayser is the brindle. All right. So I don't know. What, do you know what a brindle is? Yeah, with the that's the coating. Oh, it's a it's like the, the mottled speckle. Yeah. Of course, folks. As always, I didn't mention this earlier. If you're listening to the podcast, go to dog dot or dogs dot or doggo dot and all of these pooches that we are ooing and aahing over will be there for you to enjoy. But I remember this picture. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that one Groucho <laughs> Marx eyebrow that is just awesome. Yep. And uh you know, and, and wow. not on the other eye. That, that looks is like a Pitbull Great Dane mix, doesn't it? With the yeah. the way her snout is. What do they uh, um uh, I see. Pitbull mix. Pit mix. They just said mix it. They didn't say mixes yeah. with what, yeah. But I think with the the way the jowl is there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Great Danes. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh that's a, that's a very nice one. All right. So sorry folks. Um Oh, no, no, those are all from Jeff. So Jeff's, Jeff's questions and then Jeff's dog pictures are awesome. You'll find them at dogs.rata.com. Okay, moving on to Ben. I love pit bulls because they've got the biggest smile. Yeah, it's half their body. The, yeah. Yep. Oh, that is, it is a megawatt smile pit bulls have. Yep. All righty. Um, ben notes that we've mentioned a few times uh, that Jen has the plan slash dream to eventually live in an RV <laughs> and cruise all over the place, which does sound awesome. Ben's not sure if we've talked specifically on the show about a particular type of RV or maybe a camper van. Given our frugal nature, uh, I would imagine (laughs) we'd come up with a great option on the cheap. We have talked about this a lot and, you know, gone back and forth. For the longest time, when we were still in England, we had the Bongo, which was a very cheap buy. And the intent was just to get one of those little teardrop style things and pull that around. So we'd have that to sleep in. We'd have the Bongo for storage as well. Um... But that just never happened. I did get the tow hitch put on the box. Yeah, we did get a tow. We went as far as that, and that was expensive, and then we never used it for anything, sadly. Yeah. Uh, but that was our original intent. Um, we've been talking about it a lot for the last couple of months we, again. We did finally sell the bongo a couple of years ago after we'd moved here because it was like, we, yeah. You know, I used yeah, that was sad to for six years up. when I was in Malta on, in the summers, but it was just crazy to try and keep it from yep. America. Yeah. So somebody got a great deal. So we've been talking about a lot living here in America too. That we, I mean, because that's uh, uh, that's what really got Jen thinking about it because her parents did it when they retired from full time teaching, and Jen was always in love with the idea. And there's so much of America we haven't seen, obviously. Um, and uh, so we'd always kind of assumed we would have a trailer and a vehicle to tow it because you want to get someplace, set up camp, and then. Have the freedom to move around. We recently actually went so far as to actually start going down to RV places and checking them out seriously. We even went on it. We took oh, a test drive. We, we took a test drive on a 36 foot um, Class A. Uh, I don't remember motorhome, motor uh, which is basically like a city bus. We basically both Jen and I drove a city bus around the streets of Vancouver, Washington, <laughs> uh, just to see if we could be comfortable with it. And we were both pr- pretty yeah, comfortable. It was it was not too terribly hard to do. Um, he didn't make us back it up though. That's true. That's true. But I, we could have handled it, I think. Uh, they had a great backup camera. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, they, they all do these days. Mm. So um, I think that's kind of changed our attitude. I mean, you know, Jen, after you're looking at a bunch, Jen is in love with the Class A's, which have those big, gigantic windows up front that just, you know, as you're driving down the road, you get this panorama. Jen really likes that. You know, the Class C's that have the cab that go over the roof, it uh, just 
drives her efficiency bug nuts because it's not like we'd have somebody sleeping up there. So it's just all this wasted space. Yeah. So she just doesn't like that. Um, and so we were seriously talking about, can we find, you know, like maybe a circa 2005 or something like that, an older one that we could get relatively cheap and then buy literally a smart car. Cause we loved when we had a smart car in the UK Yeah. and I mean, I hit the road and tow that thing around. And then we found out, apparently, right now is the worst time in recorded history to attempt to do that. <laughs> because that's what every other person in America is thinking, apparently. And so prices have exploded on any RV anywhere. And so we're like, oh, well, maybe not. Maybe now is not the time. Maybe in a few years. But it did prompt us to spend a lot of time thinking seriously about what would we want to do and if we would really be comfortable with uh, a van and a teardrop trailer pulling it around. And I don't, honestly, I don't think we could be. What do you think? I think it was great for what we did and for Europe and stuff, but mm -hmm. for being out and America is so huge. It's not like you can just go somewhere for a long weekend and enjoy it. You have to get there first. And when you're driving, it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, for what I want to do, we would be out for months. Yeah. And so, yeah, we would need something that we was comfortable to live in because we would be living in it. Yep. So that was... Kind of as far as we'd gotten is... And, yeah, and, it, and a 36 it, would certainly be very comfortable, but I'm not sure that we need to go that big. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I think an ideal for us would be maybe a 23, 25-footer. Because uh, we saw several. They were like, oh, yeah, we could make a go of this. This is great. Um, until we saw the price tag. Yeah. And it completely conflicted with our fundamentally frugal nature. And um, so I think well, we... And I think the majority of people out there want a bigger, more comfortable thing. And so that's what's available in the secondhand market. Yeah. The, the shorter ones... Are, well, no, I mean, there's like there's, there's an explosion. I mean, all the really cool ones we saw were relatively new. The, you know, like those really oh, smart Thors that yeah, had a really great interior that, design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which one? That Mercedes one. That, that Mercedes one. Yeah. And like, no, 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 it, it is going to be tricky to figure that out. We've kind of put it back on hold. We were really super serious about it for the last couple of weeks until we found out that, oh, yeah, we, we can't get what we want at a price that we feel makes sense. So, but it is still something we're very serious about. And, you know, I, I, our leaning is definitely get a, a decent-sized, you know, may, hopefully sub-30-footer, a motorhome, a, you know, a Class A, not a Class C, for folks who are in the know what that means, and a very, very tiny... A towable car, like a smart car or a four two, or maybe Actually, a tiny Civic or something like that. Yesterday, when I was out, or a couple days ago, when I was out walking the dogs, and be on were, the road for six months at least. I at saw a time. two men yes. on adult-sized scooters, not scooters like yeah. um, a Honda that I had mm -hmm. in high school or um, college, but they had big fat tires, like like this big. Yeah. I so I thought I'd mention it so you could look it up and find out what those were. Okay. But there were two, like a a, a guy who was probably fifty and a guy who was probably. 70. Ride them. Okay. I, I don't know what that tires. is. All right. Yeah. Jen's indicating about this big, o o over a foot in um, width. All righty. So that's where we're at at the moment, Ben. Uh, our frugal nature denies us our ultimate dream. Well, our ultimate dream is to do it in uh, Europe. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Jack is back. It's another Jack attack. All righty. <laughs> so Jack always has the hard hitters. First of all, these two questions have to do with our... Um, uh, what would it take to change our feelings about Black Lives Matter and UBI? Okay, can we pause for a minute? Because my tea's gone cold. Jen's tea has gone cold. We'll be right back. Oops. If I can hit the button. 
Okay, Jen has reteed herself, and thank you very much, Jack, for reminding me that I had to put on my proper uniform, <laughs> which I totally forgot when I sat down to start filming with Jen. Um, I'm wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, folks, for uh, folks who are on the podcast. So, uh, first of all, uh, regarding Black Lives Matter, Jack uh, points out, and this is true, violent crime on the U.S. has been increasing, not for the first time in decades. That is incorrect, Jack. There have been spikes over the years, on a fairly regular basis, um, all over the place. Uh, if you take the overall means, yes, we have had 2020 was an unusually high spike in violence, but there have been plenty of spikes over the last few years. Anyway, Jack asks, does this rise in violent crime give me doubts about the policies pushed by Black Lives Matter? No, not at all. I'm assuming, Jack, you're referring to defund the police. I will totally grant you, I think that is one of the worst names for a policy proposal platform in human history. I agree 100% with their attitude, and the reality is, Jack, I suspect you would as well, if presented with the true um, options that it provides. That, you know, you shouldn't send out um, people who are, you know, armed to the teeth and trained, uh, first and foremost, to uh, be basically warrior peacekeepers uh, in many, many situations that they are used in. The police are used as a Swiss army knife for all kinds of things that they do not have training for, that they do not have expertise in, and that don't warrant armed presence that only exacerbates and inflames tensions. And the defund the police movement is about um, allowing police to focus on the their primary mandate, what they are best suited for, and um, not. I mean, and most police would agree. They don't want to be called out for half the calls because there are better, more well-suited professionals who can handle a lot of stuff that they have to handle. And it's unfortunate that the title, Defund Police, sounds completely different than what it actually is. And that's literally just a marketing misfire that gives your side, Jack, a lot of ammunition. Because, and, and generally so, because defund the police does not mean defund the police. It means something very, very different. And I'm still very much in favor of that. As for the rise in violence, hey, what do you know? The world went through a completely unprecedented um, pandemic event that has led to an increase in tension, has led to an increase in despair, has led directly to an increase in poverty because while so many of us are so lucky and been able to weather it, so many of our fellow people, our fellow humans around the world have suffered immeasurably. And the more suffering um, that introduces, the uh, that breeds more violence as a general rule. Um, what the rise in violent crime over the last year lets me know is, hey, what do you know? There was also a marked spike in gun sales last year. I wonder if there's a connection between the increase in gu gun-related deaths and the increase in the availability of guns. Those are the things I'm worried about, not trying to get more social workers going out to situations where social workers are needed instead of armed police officers. So that's where I stand on that one. UBI. Uh, Jack points out that inflation is increasing for the first time in decades. Again, that is patently false, Jack. That is a very narrow, myopic talking point that completely ignores trends that have been going on for decades. But still, there is no denying, I will agree, 
with the less um, inflammatory statement that inflation is on the rise at the moment. Uh, and given that this is happening after UBI-style stimulus checks, does that give me any doubt about the efficacy of UBI? No, it does not. Um, again, I wonder if there's something else that happened in 2020, in addition to stimulus checks, that might have had an impact on the economy. I wonder if a worldwide shutdown on the entire transportation network, around the entire world, thereby creating huge shortages of goods at the same time that there was a marked increase in the demand for those goods, might have led to inflation. I wonder. It could be the case, Jack. Um, it's not UBI that is leading to inflation. Uh, another point against UBI is the anemic unemployment rate. Um, I'm going to have to disagree with anemic. Um, uh, yeah, there were certainly some uh, dis disappointing um, early numbers for the return to work. But could it be, Jack, that there are other reasons people might be worried about going back to work? Like the potential for dying. Because the they have, yeah, because they maybe have um, co-workers who refuse to get vaccinated. There's no one silver bullet for any of these. Well, and You're maybe their kids aren't back in school yet. Uh, yeah. Maybe their parents have gotten mm -hmm. sick and need care. Yes. And um, yeah, there is no doubt, Jack, that there are some people who have decided, oh, you know what? Um, I can have a better life working. You know, you know, trying to find other options because I, I have a government for the first time in my living memory, actually seems to care about my well-being and tried to help me out in a jam. And maybe I can be a little bit more picky and not just run right back to my $8 an hour 7-Eleven job or my back-breaking Uber job. Maybe, maybe there's something better for me. Maybe UBI gives people the opportunity to lift their head up from the grindstone that they're on and realize there could be something better for them in the world and that they don't have to go back to some kind of soul-crushing existence. Maybe that could even be a net benefit, a net positive for humanity as a whole. Turns out, it can, and it will be. Although, when you say efficacy, it's kind of immaterial. My point about UBI, very much Yang's point, is doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Doesn't matter whether it has an impact on the economy or not. It is 100% unavoidable. A hundred years ago, it took a thousand farmers to match the output of one farmer today. And that's, all, and that's continuing to spiral. Advances in AI um, are going to eliminate the vast majority of jobs as we know them today, Jack. That's not going to happen maybe in your lifetime, but probably in your kid's lifetime. That is a definite possibility because AI is going to snowball. It is going to increase exponentially. It is already doing so. In the blink of an eye, the entire world is going to change. And we are, in the Western world, very close to a post-scarcity economy right now where um, stuff basically comes from nothing um, as more and more automation comes online. And that will lead to a situation where it is unavoidable. Universal basic income is the only viable solution. And the sooner we wake our heads up, what do you know? The sooner we can lift people out of poverty. We can redistribute some wealth. So the top 5% doesn't have, what, the top 50% of wealth? Whatever. The absolutely insane, obscene, and, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, unacceptable world we find ourselves in. Immoral, thank you. The immoral world we find ourselves in now, where um, so much wealth has been sequestered in so few, leaving so many people suffering, 
And it doesn't have to be that way. And UBI is simply the most efficient means to balance the scales and lift everybody to a decent quality of life. And that aside, it's absolutely mandatory. There's no other answer for automation. And it's not like automation is a bad thing. We are rapidly approaching a Star Trek future where people work not because they have to or they will die, but because they want to. And why would you view that as a bad thing? That's a good thing. Every generation has always wanted things to be better for their kids and their grandkids. Why shouldn't people want their kids and their grandkids to be able to pursue their dreams, whatever they are, rather than just take some soul-crushing job so that they can punch a clock from 9 to 5? Uh, yeah, anyway, though, sorry. Uh, continuing on, Jack then wants to talk about social media platforms and term of service in discriminatory ways. Uh, I, I, do I believe... Uh, social media platforms should be discriminatory or should they apply uh, their terms of service universally? Yes, they should apply universally. I'm sure we can agree on that. Uh, and then Jack gives a whole bunch of examples that I'm just going to have to call BS on a lot of these examples, Jack. Um, there is a big difference between inciting violence that directly leads to an assault on the capital of our government as opposed to maybe... Um, uh, you know, having a myopic view on uh, you know the particulars of one uh, police interaction with one person who was killed as a result, because you talk about jo Joe Biden is a filthy liar, and so is God. they're they're spreading evil lies. What are regardless of whether you agree with their statements or not, what are they trying to pursue, Jack? When they talk about police brutality and the problems our society faces, when they make those tweets, they're not calling for insurrection. They're not calling for literally overthrowing a, one, uh, you know, a legally operated election. Your, that's what your guy did, buddy. That's the problem. There's a whole scale thing. There's a whole context thing. And you are trying to compare apples to... Grenades. To, yes, thank you. You're turning apples to grenades, buddy. And it doesn't really help your argument there. But I will agree. You do mention, yeah, should the leader of Hamas be on Twitter? I think probably a good argument can be made that you know, he probably says some pretty, uh, some stuff that's called a violence that should be removed as well. I can't say that. For, I've never, I don't follow him. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting. I, you, you mentioned uh, some of this as I remember, oh, right, yeah, you had one other thing. Right now, conservatives are targeted far more than leftists. Jack, that is patently false. And a simple Google search will prove this to you, my man. Just do a search for, um, you know, uh, uh, social media bias. And, you know, you don't have to go to MSNBC or the Jacobian. There are plenty of middle of the road. You don't have to go. And don't go to the far right. Don't go to OAN, Jack. Go to um, go to Forbes. Go to the Economist. Go to MediaBias.com and look for um, you know things that have been proven to be fair and truly fair and balanced. Unlike Fox, which is very very biased. I'll grant you there is a left media bias. There is definitely a right media bias. Let's throw all that away and just go right for the center, and you will find in those center ample reports, ample proof that this is a right-wing talking point. Um, conservatives are not unfairly, and you yourself prove it, because half of your examples, are you saying the leader of Hamas is not a conservative, Jack? He's the most ultra-conservative you got! Um, and who else did you talk about in here? I forget. Uh, um, oh, um, ba -ba -ba. right, yeah, you talked about uh, Biden and, and Kamala Harris, but yeah, that... 
It has been proven definitively in studies that there is not an unfair bias against Republicans, against conservatives. And in fact, if anything, conservatives are given a wider berth. And in fact, and, and, and you yourself pointed out when you mention uh, the leader of Hamas is not being shut down, and he is certainly a right-wing conservative in the most extreme. So I'm afraid your argument doesn't line up, uh, Jack. And also, it's very easily refuted by actual, real, center, centrist reporting that is biased in neither direction. If you do that search, buddy, you will find it. Anyway, though. Uh, continuing on to some less fiery Jack stuff. Uh, we mentioned Honey Pie in a recent q and I, I assume you didn't want to touch those, did you? No. Okay. In a recent Q&A, we were no longer renting our UK home to students because it proved difficult. What happened? Uh, Jack remembers that we were really excited about the idea. Well, essentially, Brexit happened. <laughs> yes. So there's that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, the University of Surrey has created an awful lot of brand new student housing yeah. on campus. Yeah. And so essentially they have flooded the market with cheap options. Mm -hmm. And so it's no longer um, beneficial to, to yeah. rent to students. It, 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 it's as simple as that. I mean, we really did. It, it was great. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, we did, you know, I think we went through two... No, one cycle with the We students. only had one cycle? Yep. I mean, because that was certainly something that happened as well. And we hoped those kids would stay for the next cycle. And said, "Nope, we're gone." And we're like, "Oh crap! Is this going to happen every year that we have that we are well, that we're vacant nice for a while, and we have to find new tenants, and we'll get bad ones and good ones?" I remember that was definitely a yeah. concern as well. But the other part that was really nice about that was that the house would be vacant every summer, and summer in England is awesome. Mm -hmm. So I was oh, that was one of the things you were excited about. Yeah, yeah. So we did that the first year between students, mm -hmm. but you know, being in the country and understanding. So we did have a second group of students then. No, we had one group of students. We couldn't get a second group of students because of the University of Surrey housing. Yeah. Okay. So that's basically that's what it comes down. So you would still be doing that now. I would. If, if if that hadn't been the case. I would love for that house to be vacant three months a year, and then right. we could just start again. I misunderstood, Jack. I thought it was. I I, I I was always a little hesitant about it just because of you know the turnover and all that. But apparently, Jim was still cool with it. It's just economic. Um, uh, you know. Everything in the economy affects everything else as yeah. it happens. But, you know, the one thing that, that was really bad is they were not keen on gardening, and the garden was an absolute pit. Yeah. So, that was a problem. Mm -hmm. yep. We now have some, we have uh, um, three singles living in there now, through professional renters, and they keep the garden up beautifully. Uh, Jack's final question, a recent question and answer Q&A live I did. I mentioned a new siphon filter that I knew, quote, exactly what I do to completely re-energize, reinvent the third-person shooter genre on consoles, but nobody's asking me for that. Well, Jack is asking, what are my ideas for a new siphon filter? First of all, it does sound like something I would say. I do tend to hyperbolize a little bit. I'll be the first to admit that. <laughs> and maybe that was a bit overspoken. Um, I, 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 I kind of remember where I was talking about that. And um, well, what I want to do... Um, Do I need to be here for this? No, but it, it's really quick. Uh, long story short, I want to um, engender in players the feeling that I was trying to do originally with the siphon filter, which is you're never safe. You always have to be on the road. You always have to be moving. ABM, always be moving or you will die. And, you know, that's a complete contradiction of the industry standard now, which is, nope, 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 ever since Gears of War, just find a safe place to hide and poke your head up over and over and over again until, until all the bad guys are taken out. And that's really the norm. And that doesn't make for exciting cinematic gameplay action, which is what original side filter. So what I wanted to do, well, first of all, I want AI that truly acts like human players, that is smart enough to flank you, and I'm um, really 
kind of make it impossible for you to win. Because a, a super agent surrounded by a whole bunch of real thinking people who don't just wait to get shot in the head what, because I used to play peekaboo with them, which is the reality of how modern games work. But in fact, it would actually say, oh, he's over there. Every, okay, you go over there, you go over there, we'll provide cover fire for you. They can, they, it's literally impossible for one person to take down an army. Um, but of course, that's still the fantasy you have to fulfill. And um, so what I want to do is create that circumstance, but then give the player tools that will allow them to overcome it. And the biggest thing that I wanted to do visually was say, okay, you've got some kind of spy gadget that basically lets you see a um, the equivalent of a laser sight off of every gun so you know where every bullet is going to go. And you can see it before they shoot, visually on screen. And you can use that as a way to try to not dodge bullets, but to you know maneuver in such a way um, because you can see how you're about to be hit rather than just what games normally do of, oh yeah, you take a bunch of hits, oh, I'm, get I'm getting shot, I'm losing blood, I should go hide now for a while. And then I'll magically heal myself. No, no, no. A couple bullets and you're out. Or one bullet and you're out. But you can see ahead of the time because you got this spy tech that lets you know exactly where every bullet is going to go. And so you can use that to play smartly. When somebody does try to you know, come around and they're drawing a bead on you, you can see before they're going to do it. And you can make moves. And I think... One, that would be a very interesting visual that I don't think other games have ever done before. Seeing all these literal lines all over the place moving, it gives you an idea of you know what they're up to and all that, so you can make more interesting tactical decisions about positioning and all of that. And it's, it's a really simple idea, but I think it could be really revolutionary. Then I also have some thoughts about how you should really change the fundamentals for dual-stick analog control um, that are kind of inspired by, oh, what was it? By um, Jack and Daxter, of all things. Remember when they did that little shooter? That was an important little game. That did some very interesting stuff that the most of the industry ignored. And I would go back and try to apply some of the lessons learned there into more hardcore, in-your-face, Call of Duty-style action. Um, so, some a combination of stuff like that. Okay, we're done, Honey Pie. We can move on. Because Gerald wants to know, or Gerald wants to say, they've got chickens. And so Gerald's he's got he's bit the bug or the bug has bitten him and he wants to know, Honey Pie, do you make your own food mix? And if so, what is it made of? I do not. Uh-oh. I know. Um, I use a Purina. Um, my girls like crumbles, and I like crumbles. So it's a it's um, a Lang hen mix by okay. Purina. Mm -hmm. um, although I have just recently bought some from Grubblies. Okay. And it is a wonderful food. Alright. It's really expensive, um, but it, you can definitely tell the quality difference is amazing. So now I give them about half and half. And you're phasing out the Purina? Or uh, not because the Purina is cheaper mm, and you think it's good enough? Well, do you remember my um, fermenting that I was doing a couple weeks ago? I remember you saying something about fermentation and I did not investigate. <laughs> you just left that alone. Uh, that was, that one was not one of the 7,000 things I needed in my head. <laughs> Well, so I was fermenting the new Grubbly's food, um, which they said you could do, which actually surprised me. And they loved it. The chickens loved it. But it does tend to go off quickly, so you have to go through it pretty quickly. Anyway, if you want to know about, more about that, um, I can send Duck an email and I'll send you the link to that. But anyway, Grubbly's has been great, but I use Purina mostly. Okay. Alrighty. Next up, what's the friendliest breed of chicken you've had, and what does a friendly chicken do differently? Oh, um, actually, I have a salmon favorel that's very friendly. Which her one's that? Sally. Okay. Sally the salmon favorel. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, and I love her because she's got extra toes and she's also got feathers on her feet. So she just, she's got tons of character. But basically, she just, wherever I am, if I'm in her, if, 
reachable area, she will be with me and she'll be like hopping up on top of a garbage can lid to check me out or say hello. She'll be clucking and she'll be, she's just, just friendly, mm-hmm. friendly little chicken. That is definition is that they stick with you instead of keeping their distance. Yeah. And, and they want to interact with you. Mm-hmm. Well, have you had a, a meaningful interaction with Sally? It's just, it's just nice to know that she Do you reach out your hand and she hops into your hand no, or no. anything like that? I probably could train her to do that, but mm-hmm. I don't have... That's not one of my 7,000 things. Okay. Is that something that breed is known for? Their friendliness? Or were you just surprised pleasantly? Um, Actually, I haven't done the research on that. Okay. I just... You did not look for friendly chickens specifically. Um, I think when I got the chicks, because this time we got chicks, stale chicks. Yeah. Um, mainly, I, I worry about egg production. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get some colorful eggs. And then I just wanted pretty hens. So, and I got 12 hens, so I didn't have to worry about them being quite so productive. Like yeah. in Malta, I got the, the production ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that your your general red hen, though, is very curious and friendly and happy to be with you as well. Okay. But not like Sally. Well, is Sally obsessed with you? <laughs> no, no. No? Okay. I wouldn't say she's obsessed with me. All right. I don't think she's out there waiting for me to come into the garden. <laughs> oh, Where's the big chicken? Jen refers to herself as the big chicken. I am the big chicken. All right. Um, okay. And finally, Gerald asks, has the huge slump in the economy negatively uh, impacted um, fundraising this year for Rado Runs Through? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, it's pretty much... It, it, there was a bit of a drop, but it's kind of come back a little bit in the last month or so. It's pretty much stayed, uh, stayed stable. And honestly, I think that's a reflection of the fact that the majority of diehard board gamers are are more affluent. Uh, board gaming is an is a real hobby first and foremost for affluent people who have a lot of disposable incomes. Because board games are addictive and they're crazy expensive, and um, you know, and they uh, they also require a lot of free time. So all those yeah. things put them towards people who are going to be middle and upper class. And those folks were not necessarily hurt too terribly bad by the economy. It was the people who were just barely scraping by, makings in meat. Those folks, generally speaking. Board games are not part of their world to begin with, which is a shame because they are so expensive and you know, well, and they do require so much time when people are just trying to make ends meet. Yeah, and they have two or three jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I, I, we're pretty lucky. Um, very, very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, very much so. Okay, and that was it for Gerald. And, honey, we've come to the end of the road. And Henrik asks, as always, mm-hmm. wisdom of the month. Jen already had that prepared. She sent me an email halfway through the month uh, <laughs> saying, this is the one. The one. Um, which means, does Henrik have to keep asking every month? Um, I just... I feel kind of bad because he did forget one month and I kind of chided him. And then the following month he did it twice. And <laughs> just... it's like... Oh, well, basically, I just don't want to be, like, dispensing... I don't want to be talking to people if they don't want to hear what that I have to say. Right, so you do need to hear that people still want to hear it, or Henrik wants to hear it. I guess so, yeah. All right, Henrik, you got to keep those questions coming. And uh, as always, folks, please send your questions to questions at rotto.com, because otherwise we do not have a podcast. And now we are going to go out on a high note. Let me find, um, remember, that's that's a high note right there. That is beautiful. It's too bad we do not have your um, words of wisdom on this image superimposed, but they are your words of wisdom are also on Instagram, if I recall correctly. What's it got? What do you got, honey pie? Too many people think the grass is greener somewhere else, but the grass is green where you water it. Remember that. Okay, there you go. 
That is some good stuff. And folks, we are out of here. Thanks, as always, for making it to the end. Questions at questions.rado.com. And we'll see you again next month. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. <laughs>